The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey there, how's everybody doing tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome, so glad to be here with all of you. Uh, we're gonna have another good chat tonight. Um, should be good. Uh, we're just continuing to stream uh, in these rough times. Uh, stand strong and a uh, lot to talk about. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Uh, we're gonna have a great chat here tonight. So uh, I guess we'll just get the opening opening music going and we'll go from there. Of the American century. I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just, it's just a byproduct you have to do. Everything would be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. Welcome, everybody. So glad to be here with all of you. So glad we can be having a great conversation here tonight. Um, yeah, uh, the way we normally do things, as almost all of you are probably aware, uh, those who haven't watched before, I guess this is just an update. I give my opening remarks, uh, my opening comments. Then from there, um, we do the roll call where we find out who's on the other side of the camera. I call you out as I see you. Names and locations, names and locations. We do that whole thing. We find out who's with us. And then after that, I answer super chat questions for the rest of the night. Uh, and that is the way we roll. Uh, I answer your super chat questions for the rest of the night. Um, and then at that point, uh, we're done. So if you have something you want me to talk about in the second half of the show, now would be the time to shoot me a super chat. Uh, just keep sending them, and I will, I will be writing them down, typing them, uh, you know, typing them down throughout the show, uh, and then I answer them for the second half of the show, and that's how the show works. Uh, it's good stuff, folks. Good stuff. Good. Glad to be here with all of you. So, welcome everybody. Uh, I went to the barber, as you can see. I got my my beard cut down, so it wasn't that big scraggly beard. I uh, got a haircut, you know, and so now I feel so much, so much younger, so much fresh. Uh, the weather here in New York City continues to be erratic. It can't make up its mind about whether it's winter or summer. Um, and we seem to be alternating between the two of those. And it's very frustrating. Uh, this is why I, I insist global warming is probably a reality because the way the weather is acting is certainly not traditional and according to normal patterns. Um, and we're still waiting, uh, waiting for confirmation. It looks like we're going to have a CPI conference in Chicago. I'm waiting to get everything in order. Got a lot of folks, uh, a lot of folks trying to get my attention right now. A lot of things coming at me from many different directions. But look, I'm still here streaming with all of you because that's how important all of you are to me. Seriously, doing these streams is just really a breath of fresh air for me. The ability to get on here and talk with all of you and chat with all of you and engage with all of you is really, 
really, really special, uh, really, really, really special for me. So, um, you know, I'm really glad that we can continue doing these streams. Um, so hopefully I'll soon be announcing the date for the Chicago conference. Um, but you know, we are just going to have to wait and see, uh, that's how these things work. So, uh, tonight I wanted to, to talk about a few things. Now I obviously know what's going on. Imran Khan, uh, the president or uh, prime minister of Pakistan has been removed. It was clearly a U.S. Uh, maneuver. There are now huge demonstrations going on in Pakistan against U.S. Uh, intervention uh, in their politics against their very popular president, Imran Khan. Right now, Hojism. Um, so there's that. And so there's that. Um, we also know that in Ukraine, uh, the battle for Mariupol uh, is continuing. Um, U.S. media has been caught uh, showing, you know, Ukrainians uh, with Nazi Nazi symbols, uh, symbols associated with people who massacred Poles and committed horrendous crimes against humanity. That's, of course, being covered up. Um, that's taking place. What other news is there? Um, well, at the same time, uh, Joe Biden uh, is continuing to fail the American people, uh, continuing to wreck the U.S. economy, continuing to live up to the title we've given him, which is the starvation president, as he's trying to starve people around the world uh, with the, the blocking of Russian fertilizer exports. Basically, crops won't be fertilized. Um, and he's also, you know, he froze the funds of Afghanistan. Uh, right after pulling all the U U.S. troops out, he froze all their money in the middle of an especially cold winter, and there continue to be deaths in Afghanistan. Now he's promising food shortages in the United States as a result of his foreign policy and his attacks on Russia. Uh, so that that is continuing to be the case. Uh, there's this continuing scandal with the Secret Service, which is really bizarre the more you look into it. Um, well, what else? Uh, what else is new? The synthetic left continues to uh, rile people up and incite them against Russia. Um, you know, I had a great uh, time at a very important conference that happened yesterday. The Schiller Institute invited the Russian ambassador to the United States, uh, as well as uh, leaders of think tanks in China and members of parliament from South Africa uh, and fig important figures in India uh, to have a great conference. And I was able to be on the third panel. Um, and so I gave some remarks uh, at that. You can see those on the YouTube channel, those remarks I gave the Schiller Institute conference. Um, Amazon Labor Union helped the working class. Very good question. Um, what else is new? Uh, we've seen victories at Amazon, which, you know, that there's been a union victory at Amazon, and that's a big step forward for the working class. And we're going to talk about that later. I, some, someone just asked a super chat question about that. Uh, that's very important. Um, what else? Um, the synthetic left elements are screwing around and continuing to be silly. And, you know, I, I wanted to, to talk about a couple things. And this is what really the thrust of my opening remarks are going to be here tonight. Um, you know, I, you know, I like to show clips, you know, now that we're using StreamYard and now we're doing things a little bit differently, I have the ability to show clips on here. Um, so, you know, we do come from a tradition, those of us who believe in Marxism, those of us who are anti-imperialists, those of us who believe in the class struggle and scientific socialism, 
we do come out of a tradition. Um, and uh, the reason that I am so frustrated with some of the voices that speak in the name of our tradition that are supporting imperialism is that they are really obscuring the entire history of what our movement is about. So I have a couple clips I wanted to show you here tonight, um, you know, that, that I think are important. And then we'll, we'll get to some other things and then, then that'll be my opening remarks. But, you know, Fred Hampton, there's a lot of talk right now about the, the killing of Fred Hampton, right? There was a movie made about him. Uh, it's very widespread in the United States to recognize and celebrate the legacy of the Black Panthers, which is good because the Black Panthers were an amazing organization that fought against police brutality, that uh, did community work with their free breakfast program, that were, were guided by scientific socialism and Marxism. Uh, the Black Panthers were an amazing organization. Tremendous. Uh, and if they were around today... Uh, the bread tubers and the people who have Ukraine flags on their social media would hate the Black Panthers because the Black Panthers were tankies. The Black Panthers were absolutely tankies. Um, May 12th, Mar Nurses March in D.C. Uh, Black Panthers were absolutely tankies. Uh, in, in so many ways. Uh, they were very close to the government of North Korea. They were very close to Mao and China and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, they were very close to the government of Cuba. They actually received funding from Libya. Uh, you know, if the Black Panthers were around today, uh, they'd probably have a tag on their Twitter that said Libyan state-affiliated media because Gaddafi gave them money uh, to build their community groups and their organizations. Uh, the Black Panthers were everything that BreadTube is not. Um, and at the time that Fred Hampton was murdered by the American government, um, that was not widely acknowledged in mainstream media. And I actually have a clip here. This is how mainstream U.S. media covered the killing of Fred Hampton. When Fred Hampton, the leader of the Black Panther Party, was gunned down in his bed with 200 bullets when the police burst into his apartment and shot him. And this is widely acknowledged that it was just a cold-blooded assassination of a black revolutionary leader. Uh, this is how U.S. media, U.S. mainstream media, this is how they portrayed it. This is the actual coverage on the news of the next day following the killing of Fred Hampton. Watch this very closely. This is how it was reported by U.S. mainstream media at the time. In Chicago today, two Black Panthers were killed as police raided a Panther stronghold. One of the dead was Fred Hampton, 22-year-old Illinois chairman of the Panthers. Bill Plant reports. State's attorney's police arrived at Fred Hampton's west side apartment half a block from Panther headquarters at 4.45 this morning. They had a search warrant authorizing them to look for illegal weapons. The state's attorney's office says its men were fired upon after identifying themselves at the door and that Hampton and another man were killed in the 15-minute gun battle which followed. Two policemen and four of the nine people in the apartment were wounded. Hampton's body was found in bed. Panther Bobby Rush charges it was the raiding party, not the Panthers, who did the shooting. Murder. The pigs murdered uh, Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton while he lay in bed. I prove it. I prove it to the world that Fred Hampton was murdered by the pigs. Their lies, their arguing to the people won't, can bear up to the evidence that we have that they murdered uh, our Deputy Chairman in cold blood as he lay in his bed asleep. Police displayed a cache of 14 revolvers and shotguns and about a thousand rounds of ammunition, which they said had been taken from the apartment. Cook County State's Attorney Edward Hanrahan commended his men for bravery and restraint. The immediate violent criminal reaction of the occupants in shooting at announced police officers 
emphasizes the extreme viciousness of the Black Panther Party. So does their refusal to cease firing at the police officers when urged to do so several times. See that? That's how mainstream media covered the assassination and murder of Fred Hampton. They said it was a shootout. Uh, they had the police on there saying, oh, they shot, shot back several times when urged not to. Uh, they shot at announced police officers. And you can bet that if Fred Hampton uh, and, and, you know, if Fred Hampton were around today and he was doing what he was doing, uh, that it, if the government were then to proceed to murder him, uh, people like us would be on there saying that Fred Hampton was assassinated. And what would be the response of Vosh? What would be the response of serfs? What would be the response of contrapoints? They'd all go, that's a conspiracy theory. Oh, you're just saying that because the Soviet Union and China are paying you to say that. You, that's a conspiracy theory. Look at all those guns they got out of the Black Panthers apartment building. Oh, uh, you know, that's a conspiracy theory. The American government doesn't kill people. That's how they would respond to it. Mainstream media is not our friends. And that's what these people don't get. The Black Panthers were aligned with revolutionary governments around the world that the USA was trying to overthrow. The Black Panthers were assassinated and murdered by the American government, and mainstream media covered up those murders and assassinations. Right? You saw the way, the way it was covered. They made it sound like, uh, if you watch that report, uh, you would think that these were just a group of uh, you know, black criminals or people with guns or something, and, they, and the police, they shot at the police, and the police killed them in self-defense. And now we know that's not what happened. We know that that is not what happened. What actually happened was that Fred Hampton was murdered in his bed. But in order to, to realize that, you had to look beyond mainstream media. You had to question the standard uh, propaganda narrative that people are being given, which BreadTube not only refuses to do, not only do they refuse to question uh, the propaganda narratives that are put out by the American government, but they go out of their way to try and incite violence against and welcome and, and promote state repression against those who did. So if, if this had happened today, not only would they claim that Fred Hampton deserved to die, uh, but they would also try to discredit anyone who said that, that Fred Hampton didn't deserve to die. And they would want the government to come arrest you and they'd want Antifa to come beat you up and they'd want you to be banned from left-wing spaces. Right. I mean, that's really what BreadTube is. They are the opposite of everything the Black Panthers stood for. Mainstream media lied about the Black Panthers and revolutionaries were ones who questioned the lies. Black Panthers aligned themselves with Russia and with China and with Cuba and with Libya. Uh, and and these people just don't understand this. They really don't understand this. And it needs to be made clear uh, that that if you're repeating U.S. foreign policy talking points, you are not a revolutionary. And if you are trying to demonize those who stand with countries around the world that have broken free from Wall Street imperialism, countries like Russia, countries like China, countries like Iran and Venezuela and Cuba, uh, you are a good person. And if they're trying to demonize you and trying to isolate you, they're not revolutionaries. Um, you know, people really forget all of this. And that's why the history of our movement is important. I'm very critical of the 1960s political upsurge, the so-called new left. Um, and we're going to talk about some of that, but I've just got a couple more clips I want to show you. Um, you know, uh, this is a clip of somebody I actually met, uh, on a few occasions, not a few occasions. I actually, you know, I was in his presence 
quite a few times. A guy named Andy Stapp. I don't know if people have ever heard the name Andy Stapp before. He had a New York Times obituary when he died a few years back. But Andy Stapp was a communist uh, who basically tried to unionize the U.S. military during the Vietnam War. He was a soldier uh, who was a communist, uh, and he tried to bring a union uh, and, and create a union inside the U.S. military uh, during the Vietnam War, a servicemen's union. So this is a clip of Andy Stapp speaking. Uh, this, was, this was a soldier, uh, an active duty soldier, who tried to form a union, the American Servicemen's Union. Have you ever asked yourself why we have had increasing trouble with discipline in our armed forces? Listen closely to the chairman of the American Servicemen's Union and you will understand. Okay, I'm gonna run down some stuff tonight about the GI revolts and rebellions that have been going on in the U.S. Army over the last year, the organizing drive that we're undertaking. But before I do that, I got something real important here. Korean people have asked the American Servicemen's Union to send their greetings to the revolutionary young people in America. And they sent us a letter, which I'm going to read. Dear Andy, our thinking is that the ASU and the People's Korea will combine efforts in chopping the head off U.S. imperialism. will combine efforts in chopping the head off U.S. imperialism and tearing its limbs in concert with the revolutionary people the world over, in mutilating the U.S. ruling circles, fully supporting the ASU. You will readily agree with us in this respect, I believe. It's right on. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea is the banner of freedom and independence of our people and also a powerful weapon of building socialism and communism. Your contributions will greatly encourage the Korean people in their struggle to achieve an independent, peaceful unification of the fatherland, accomplishing the complete victory of socialism and communism. The ASU is playing a leading role in this fight, in this organizing drive. We have chapters of the American Servicemen's Union on 60 large military installations in the United States and 40 overseas. Just as the Bolshevik Party organized through the Soviets in 1917 against the Tsar and the oppression in Russia, the American Servicemen's Union is organizing Soviets within the U.S. Imperialist Army. The only line that's going to lead to victory, the only line that's going to lead to victory and revolution is a proletarian line in the Army. And they know that whoever can command the allegiance of the rank-and-file troops, that command is going to be decisive in revolution or counter-revolution. And right now, the American Servicemen's Union is building an army within an army, a workers' militia inside the U.S. Army. And along with the Panthers and others, we're going to make that revolution. Power of the people. We are going to win this session. All right. Now, um, 
that was just a great clip. And I saw the super chats that went by. Uh, I saw about the censorship uh, and I saw uh, Gabby asking about Idi Amin. I wrote both of those down. Um, and, you know, that was an effort to unionize uh, the U.S. US armed forces uh, during the Vietnam War. And he's on there as a representative of soldiers uh, who are becoming organized uh, against uh, against the Vietnam War and and such. And he's on there uh, and he's reading a letter. And you just heard a read a letter from North Korea, from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, basically saying that the anti-Vietnam War movement was aligned with North Korea in their struggle against U.S. imperialism. That's powerful stuff. That is very, very powerful stuff. Um, and um, it's now illegal to unionize soldiers. Gavin loves the clips. Thank you, Gavin. Shout out to you. Gavin's great, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, it is now illegal to unionize soldiers. But at the time, it was not yet illegal. In the 70s, they finally did make it illegal. But at this time, it was legal. Um, and so there was an effort to unionize the soldiers. Um, and there's this myth that I heard my whole life. Uh, you know, people would always, whenever they talked about the Vietnam War, they'd say, oh, the, the hippies, they spit on our troops. They spit on the soldiers, you know, and, you know, they called them baby killers. And, and I was always told that's why you should never protest a war ever again. During the Vietnam War, uh, the hippies were spitting on our troops and disrespecting our country so we can never protest a war. And that's not true. Uh, the opposite is what happened. The, the hippies and the communists that were against the Vietnam War organized the soldiers. Uh, they formed the uh, the Vietnam anti Vietnam War uh, movement. Uh, they they formed the American Servicemen's Union. They formed the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. John Kerry uh, was part of that, um, and it was actually it was it was you know communists organized within the U.S. military uh, against the war. And one of the saddest things I've seen lately is there's this weird strand of cancel culture thinking I see on the internet that says we should we should cancel anybody who joins the army, right? That anyone who's a soldier, anyone who's in the military should not be associated with the left. We should say, you're bad, you're a bad person. That's just completely wrong. We need people in the military who wake up and say that these wars are wrong. We need people uh, in, in, in the military who say, look, we don't want to fight these wars and, and, and stand up and, and challenge these lies. And right now, anti-war sentiments are bigger in the U.S. military than among the general population because they're the ones that have to go and fight these wars. And a lot of them realize how much, you know, these U.S. military interventions around the world are aiding terrorism and aiding al-Qaeda and, and not really benefiting the American people, not keeping the American people safe. Um, so there's a couple more clips from this, uh, this, this conference, from this, this video I want to show. Uh, this next bit, they started to show it here. This is Bobby Seale, the leader of the Black Panther Party. He's kind of wrapping up the conference. This conference happened in 1969. Uh, Richard Nixon had been elected president of the United States, and COINTELPRO was coming down really hard on the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party was just being viciously attacked by the FBI and the Nixon administration, Ramsey Clark, uh, who I used to work for, the former U.S. Attorney General, uh, he had been the Attorney General under Lyndon Johnson. And Nixon had fired Ramsey Clark because Ramsey Clark had been trying to stop the FBI from attacking the Black Liberation Movement. Uh, and he'd been, he'd been refusing to wiretap uh, the, the phone of Stokely Carmichael. And Richard Nixon said that when he got elected, the first thing he would do is fire Ramsey Clark. So he fired Ramsey Clark. Uh, and after firing Ramsey Clark, uh, he then uh, allowed the FBI to just viciously go after the Black Panthers to start, and they murdered Fred Hampton. Um, and and so the Black Panthers, they were under attack. Um, 
And in response to being under attack, uh, you know, and having their members killed, and it was just, there was already police repression of them, but it really escalated. Once Ramsey Clark was out of there, once Nixon was in office, it really escalated. At that point, at that point, the Black Panthers and the Communist Party USA got over their differences. This is really important history. The Communist Party USA at first hated the Black Panthers because they had guns and they thought, okay, the Black Panthers, they're ultra left adventurers. They must be FBI agents. This must be like a sting operation. And when the Black Panthers first started, the Communist Party denounced them and they said, this is an ultra left adventurist group. These are extremists. The Black Panthers were close with China, which was fighting with the Soviet Union. They were close with North Korea and Cuba, but the Soviet Union didn't want anything to do with the Black Panthers. Uh, and, and, you know, and the Communist Party USA that was taking direction from the Soviet Union, they didn't like the Black Panthers. But then when Nixon got into office and was viciously attacking the Black Panthers, uh, and at, at that point, uh, there was a convergence of interests. So the Black Panthers and the Communist Party made up their differences and they had a conference in California calling for a united front against fascism. And so at this conference that the Black Panthers put on, they let the Communist Party USA people uh, play a major role. And the Communist Party USA and the Black Panthers overcame their differences and formed this united front against fascism. And that's what, that's what, um, what Bobby Seale is, is speaking about in this clip. Sit up tonight with national committees, plural, to combat fascism. Many wants to talk about how can we create the new party, the new mass people's party, the new workers' party, what have you, or however you want to phrase it, I think you should phrase it. Yes, we should create a party. The Black Panther Party says yes. You damn right we need to parallel an American liberation front in America. We say that needs to be done. And we're saying that we have some guns to deal with fascism, but let's start with the community control of police. If you don't want to deal with the guns, let's start dealing with the community control of police. Petition, let's move it. Let's defend the political prisoners. Power to the people. On September 5th. So that's, that's kind of some interesting history there. There's one more clip I wanted to show from this. Just one more little clip from from this old film. Um, I'm, so I'm just going to get it queued up here. Um, if I can just roll it back um, right, right here, I think. Yeah, right, right, right here. All right. Very good. So, and um, let me just explain what this clip is about. So, you know, years ago, uh, there was a member of my family uh, and they saw I was like a teenager. I was getting interested in Marxism and socialism and communism. Uh, and they said to me, you know, if you want to be an activist, Caleb, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of activists back in my day, uh, you know, but why do you have to be a communist? You know, when I was a kid, there were people marching against the Vietnam War. Uh, there were people marching for civil rights, but none of those people were communists. Uh, none of those folks were communists. Uh, there was students for a democratic society, uh, but none of those people were communists. You don't have to be a communist, right? You don't have to be associated with Stalin and Mao and Fidel Castro and Kim Il-sung and all these radicals and extremists. Just be an activist. Just be a progressive. 
Well, they were wrong because all of those people were communists. That's what people don't understand. There would be no civil rights movement in the United States if it weren't for the communists. It was the Communist Party of the United States that formed the Civil Rights Congress that you know, fought against the, the, the lynching and Jim Crow terror, the Scottsboro Nine. It was allies of the Communist Party like Vito Marcantonio. Uh, who put up the anti-lynching bill uh, that was, you know, was voted down so many times, um, you know, and and all those people were communists, and it was communists who built the anti-Vietnam War movement, and it was it was communists who who did all of this. So this member of my family, they they didn't know what they were talking about, um, you know, and they said, oh, you know, none of those people were communists. They just didn't know what they were talking about. But I think a lot of the bread tubers feel the same way, and while they might be vaguely interested in the idea of communism. What they don't understand is that the movement for civil rights for African-Americans in this country was aligned with Stalin. It was aligned with Mao. It was aligned with Fidel Castro. It was aligned with Gaddafi. It was aligned with communism. And the movement against the Vietnam War was aligned with Ho Chi Minh. It was aligned with Mao. It was aligned with the Soviet Union. Uh, and that, that the progressive struggles, the labor movement in this country was aligned with the Soviet Union. You know, the biggest victories in, in the labor movement came from the strike wave of 1934, the summer of 1934. Um, and the strike wave of 1934, uh, that was when the Soviet Union was riding high, when we were in a Great Depression. And that's when it was, it was communists, uh, you know, from the Communist Party USA that shut down the docks in San Francisco. It was communists in Toledo, Ohio, who did the Toledo auto light strike uh, and shut down Toledo, Ohio. It was Trotskyites, uh, you know, who I guess they were against the Soviet Union, but they were still communists. And, you know, they were coming out of the Russian Revolution that shut down Minneapolis. It was communists all throughout the South and South Carolina and elsewhere who led the sharecroppers strikes that led to a state of emergency declared in many Southern states. And it was in response to this wave of communist led upsurges and fighting for working people. Uh, that Roosevelt passed uh, the Works Progress Administration and started hiring the unemployed. And a couple of years later, he created unemployment insurance and social security. So communists have always been the vanguard of progressive struggles in this country. And this idea that, that communists are on the right because they don't go along with wars. Uh, communists must be right wing uh, because they, uh, they stand with, with anti-imperialist governments that seem, quote unquote, authoritarian. That's delusional. Right. I mean, it's because of hardline Stalinist, Marxist, Leninist communists that the civil rights movement was successful, that the anti-Vietnam War movement was successful, that the, the labor movement was successful. And if you're going to demonize communists and you're going to demonize tankies, uh, if you do that, you are basically denouncing all the greatest progressive people in the history of this country. Um, uh, and so, you know, in response to those who think the anti-Vietnam War movement was not led by uh, National Congress. Secretary of SDS, and this is Bernadine Dorn, Interorganizational Secretary. So you, you, you are is there a communist faction making a big power play for SDS? Is there any communists back here? I guess there is. Are there communists in this organization? Sure, man. There's there's a lot of communists. You'll see when you come in and listen, you hear people talk, and you, you can judge for yourself whether they're communists or not. There are communists in the organization. There's no doubt about that. Uh, there are also liberals in the organization. SDS is not, and the movement in this country, is not something that exists during the school year and is going to start up again in the fall, and that they have to worry about whether we're going to be in the streets in the fall. We're going to be on the streets and in every institution in this country from now on. What would you put? We're going to replace capitalism with socialism. This is the National Revolutionary. 
So I just wanted to show you that. That was Students for a Democratic Society, uh, the main leader of anti-Vietnam War protests uh, and civil rights protests in the 1960s. And they're asking them now, are there communists in your organization? You just saw their response. Absolutely, there were communists in that organization. Um, Maoists, uh, you know, Maoists and, and Marxist-Leninists. And absolutely, there were communists in the organization. So I just wanted to show those clips because I just felt like it was really necessary. Uh, this, you know, anti-tanky, uh, anti-tanky sentiments are, um, are genuinely problematic. Um, and, you know, it's worth, worth discussing. But from there, um, I wanted to actually talk about um, the fact that, um, you know, like I said, we do have a history as a movement. Uh, there are all kinds of people who don't seem to know that history. So I think we'll just start at the beginning, right? I mean, I, I think I'm just going to quickly summarize just factually the history of our movement uh, because it's very, very important. Um, I'm just going to talk about, about the history. So where did socialism come from, this notion of socialism? Where did it come from? Socialism as a movement emerged in the aftermath of the capitalist revolutions. Uh, when feudalism existed, you, know, you had feudalism, you had landlords and peasants, you had a monarchy, a king, uh, peasants worked the land. Uh, that was the feudal system. But there were revolutions that swept the world, toppling feudalism. And in Britain, you had the English Civil War. In France, you had the French Revolution. Uh, you had many uprisings throughout Europe. And feudalism was being overthrown. But feudalism being overthrown did not lead to a, a, a more equitable society. Uh, you looked at France after the revolution. There was still a lot of poverty. And there was still a lot of wealth concentrated in the hands of a few. And the same in, in Britain after the English Civil War, right? You know, they toppled the king. You had the rise of Oliver Cromwell. And everywhere that, that the revolutions were happening and toppling feudalism, uh, they were always promising to create a more egalitarian society. The United States, you know, here they talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In France, they talked about liberty, egalité, fraternity. But it didn't happen. You still had greatly unjust societies. And so in the emergence of a new society coming out of the, of the feudal order, the feudal order is ripped apart. Coming out of feudalism, you have people that are not happy. At first, there was what you called utopian trends. There were people, many of whom were often very religious, uh, that thought, you know, they saw the inequality that existed. They saw hunger and homelessness and poverty. And they started arguing that we needed a more rational and a more moral society. Uh, the word socialism was actually invented by Henry St. Simon. And Henry St. Simon was a French, a French man, uh, a deeply religious French man, who built a cooperative. Um, and he built cooperatives. And he advocated feeding the hungry people. Uh, and he called for socialism, with an E on the end in French. Um, and it, it wasn't clear. Um, freest countries in 2022. All right. All right. It wasn't really uh, clear what socialism was. It was just an opposition to what he called liberalism, which was the society that put individualism above all else. Uh, the society that came out of the French Revolution that emphasized individual rights, that emphasized the right of private property for factory owners, etc. He was against it. 
All right, you had Robert Owen. Robert Owen was a, a factory owner, a capitalist from Wales, who saw the conditions that working people were living under, and he moved to Scotland, and he started kind of a socialist commune city in New Lanark. He eventually moved to Indiana, and he started a, a socialist commune called New Harmony in, in the U.S. state of Indiana. Um, and there were other utopians, but the way they talked about it was they essentially saw injustice in the world. They saw hunger. Uh, they saw poverty amid plenty, right? Society was producing wealth more efficiently than ever before, but yet you had mass hunger uh, on the side of it. And they argued in the name of morality and the name of religion that something needed to be done about it. That was the beginning of it. But then in 1848, and this is very interesting, in 1848, you had a mass uprising in what would later be known as Germany. There was no unified Germany that had been created yet. There are a number of feudal societies uh, that existed, uh, that feudal principalities and kingdoms. And in Germany, you had rebellions um, in 1848, and you had peasants rising up against the landowners, fighting for their rights. Uh, you had in the cities, you had revolutionaries and students and there were many different factions in the German Revolution of 1848. Um, but all of them were fighting for a modern Germany. They wanted to create a modern Germany, a uh, modern nation state, a republic, right? Um, and that was the, the 1848 revolution in Germany. Um, and, you know, it was, and, and it was defeated. Uh, there was no German revolution in 1848. Um, and a, a lot of the reason you have so many Germans in Pennsylvania and Ohio and places like that is, they fled uh, Germany in 1848. And in fact, you know, like some of the most radical people in the German Revolution were these radical Protestants, you know, uh, you know, Mennonites and, and Baptists, Anabaptists and others. They were very, very radical. They were very opposed to the monarchy. They were very opposed to Catholicism and feudalism. And they were driven out of Germany. Um, and many people were driven out of Germany after the 1848 revolution failed. One of the factions in Germany in the 1848 revolution was called the Communist League. And it was a small faction in the German revolution, but ultimately they had to flee. The leader of the Communist League was Karl Marx. And Karl Marx, in the aftermath of the German revolution, published the Communist Manifesto. And the Communist Manifesto, they didn't call themselves socialists, they called themselves communists, because their understanding of socialism was very different than the kind of socialism that people like Henry St. Simone talked about and people like uh, Robert Owen talked about was different. It was scientific socialism. And that's what made it different. They didn't see socialism as being created as the result of, of people just thinking it's a good idea or wanting to act more moral. They saw socialism emerging as part of the march of history. They argued that history is driven forward by struggle. And that just as there had been a struggle to topple feudalism and the feudal aristocracy had been toppled, giving birth to capitalism, that capitalism would be toppled and replaced by a new social order. And that it was the struggle between classes that drives history forward. History is driven forward by class struggle. And that it would be from the problems of capitalism that socialism would be emerged. With, that every order contains the seeds of its own destruction. That was what they believed, that every order contains the seeds of its own destruction. And that just as feudalism had created the mercantile classes that eventually mobilized with the peasantry to overthrow it, 
uh, capitalism had created a new class called the proletariat, the working class. And the working class are those who own nothing but their labor power, and they rent themselves out to a capitalist. They must sell themselves piecemeal as any other commodity, exposed to the vicissitudes of the market. Um, they can live only so long as they sell their labor power to a capitalist, uh, and they live, and they can they they can do that only as long as their labor enriches capital. The proletariat, the working class, those with nothing to lose but their chains and a whole wide world to win, and that the working class was expanding. Peasants were moving to the cities and becoming factory workers. Small business owners were going out of business as great monopolies in capitalism were emerging and giant businesses were being formed. And essentially, you had a situation where you, you had two classes, the proletariat, the working class, with nothing to sell but their labor, and the bourgeoisie, those who owned the factories and owned the land and owned the, the banks and owned the big centers of economic power. And you had these two classes. Um, um, okay. The stream. Writing it down. That's what you had, those two classes. And Marxism argued that eventually the working class would rise up and seize control of the state, the government. And with the state, uh, once they took control of the state, they would use the state to put the means of production, the centers of economic power, under public property. And in doing so, that would lead to a rational economy where profit was no longer in command. Capitalism is production organized for profit. Socialism uh, and, and communism emerge when the economy is lifted, uh, is, is lifted from the artificial restraints, that the irrationality of capitalism uh, is abolished. And uh, with rational central planning of the economy, um, you can have an economy where growth is no longer held back, where you don't have poverty amid plenty, uh, and people can be raised up out of poverty, and the irrationality of a system based on profits is overcome. And that was the Marxist movement. And in order to carry out this end, Karl Marx formed what he called the International Working Men's Association. Uh, and the, the was the first international, and they had workers from all over the world, from the United States, from Britain, from France, from Germany. They tried to have as many different countries represented in the International Working Men's Association. Um, and that was the idea. Um, and uh, that, was, that was the first international. And the first international played a very progressive role in history. They were involved in the struggle to abolish slavery in the United States, for example. Uh, the struggle to abolish slavery uh, was a very, very important movement in the United States. And you had the National Labor Union uh, that participated and were big supporters of Abraham Lincoln. You had a communist general named August Willick, a brigadier general in the Union Army uh, who led soldiers into battle. Uh, you had uh, eventually the formation of the American Federation of Labor. The AFL was one of the first unions. It was founded by people who at one point had been uh, part of the First International. And the first international was very important. Now, in 1871, in Paris, uh, you know, you had the workers of Paris rise up and revolt, right? The, what had happened was the, the French government had surrendered to the Prussian invaders, uh, and so the workers didn't go along with the surrender, and they established their own government, the Paris Commune of 1871. And originally, the, uh, the Paris Commune was opposed by Marx. Marx thought it was not a good idea to have the revolt and create the Paris Commune in 1871. 
However, after the Paris Commune got going, Karl Marx changed his mind and he said, no, they were right. And the Paris Commune, Karl Marx said, was the first example of the dictatorship of the proletariat, of the workers rising up. Under capitalism, we have the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. And so socialism, the beginnings of socialism, is, is when the state is not controlled by the big capitalists anymore. It's controlled by the workers. It's the dictatorship of the proletariat. And Vosch lies about what Karl Marx wrote about. And in my book, Red Tube Serves Imperialism, I exposed that. He claims that Marx never wanted there to be a proletarian state. And he misrepresents a quote from, uh, from the Civil War in France uh, by, by Karl Marx. Civil War in France is the book, the, the speech really, it was a presentation Karl Marx gave about the Paris Commune of 1871. And in that, he says that the, uh, the Paris Commune showed that the proletariat cannot simply seize hold of the ready-made state machinery. And that's true. They need to create a new state, a new proletarian state. And Vosch lies about that. And he uses that one quote where he says, he says they can't seize hold of the ready-made state machinery as if Marx didn't believe in having a central government. Well, that's ridiculous because the entire following pages, like the next three or four pages of the pamphlet are all about the new working class government that the communards of Paris created. Uh, they created councils, workers' councils. They created their own militias and police forces, their own courts, etc. Um, so, you know, the idea that Marx didn't believe in creating a proletarian state, I mean, read the Communist Manifesto, uh, read Socialism, Utopian and Scientific by Frederick Engels. No, the idea was that the capitalist state created to serve the ends of capital would be broken apart and in its place would emerge a proletarian state based in the communities of working people, right? That's, that's the idea. And, and that is absolutely true. You know, we can't build socialism in the United States with the FBI and with the Pentagon and with the, uh, the CIA. You know, we would have to create a new kind of military designed to serve the people. Uh, we'd have to create a new kind of intelligence service designed to serve the people, a new federal police apparatus. You know, uh, the, the local police departments that are there to, exec uh, to protect the capitalists and property owners would have to be replaced with a new kind of police force, a new police force that was based in communities and was designed to serve the people, right? You, would need, you can't just seize hold of the ready-made capitalist state machinery. That's true. But you must create a new state. And that was the Paris Commune of 1871. And it was defeated, um, but it's from the Paris Commune that we get the fist salute. Uh, it's from the Paris Commune. We get the Internationale, uh, which is a song. Uh, and that's, that's the Marxist movement. That's, that was what was going on at that time. Um, and Marx, you know, he created the first international, the International Working Men's Association. But it eventually broke apart um, because increasingly, um, books on the history of the USSR, very good. Increasingly, there became, you know, a problem that the First International was dominated um, by these kind of middle-class anarchist types who didn't really want to build a mass workers' movement. They just believed in violence, um, you know. Uh, and, you know, Bakunin, Mikhail Bakunin, uh, Ferdinand LaSalle, these other ultra-leftist elements uh, came to dominate the First International. So ultimately, Karl Marx uh, and, and others, they, they broke apart the First International. Around the time Marx was dying, uh, you had the emergence of the German Social Democratic Party, the Social Democratic Party of Germany. One of Marx's last texts is called The Critique of the Goethe Program, because the, the socialists and labor organizers in Germany who didn't want to be associated with ultra-left adventurism and violence and terrorism, but wanted to build a mass working class movement, they came together in Goethe in Germany, and they wrote, you know, they wrote the Goethe Program, which was kind of what their party stood for. And Karl Marx saw the 
pamphlet, you know, the, the Goitha program. And he went, oh, gosh, this is all wrong. And he smacked himself in the face. He said, this is all wrong. So he wrote a very important pamphlet called Critique of the Goitha Program. And in the Critique of the Goitha Program, Karl Marx explains a number of things. First of all, he says that socialism is not about the redistribution of wealth, right? Socialism is not about the redistribution of wealth. It's about changing property relations. Uh, you know, it's not about, about redistributing what the workers create, the workers create the wealth. It's about changing the mechanism through which the wealth is created. It's about, about having the banks, factories, and industries and the centers of economic power and the means of production operating according to a central rational plan. And from there, Marx points out that ultimately the only way to completely break down inequality and create a society without inequality is by creating a higher level of abundance. Uh, he says that, you know, that only, only when the, the springs of cooperative wealth flow more abundantly, when labor becomes life's prime want and no longer a necessity, only then can the narrow horizon of bourgeois right be overcome in its entirety and, from each, and, and society can inscribe upon its banners from each according to his own ability to each according to his needs. So the goal is to have a rationally planned you know, economy, a centrally planned economy under the leadership of a working class government. And with rational planning, raise the level of wealth in society to the point that inequality can fade away and people can only work, only have to work because they feel like working. That's the goal, right? It is, it is about creating a working class government. It's about rationally organizing the economy, overcoming the narrow horizon of bourgeois right and the rule of profits, um, manufacturing. homeland. That's the goal, right? Um, and Marx makes that very clear. Now, Marx died. Um, at the time Marx died, he was not particularly famous. Uh, you know, I mean, he had written for the New York Tribune, which was the main Republican Party newspaper of New York City. Uh, and he had, you know, he had a following around the world, but but he was not, you know, his, his funeral was attended by like seven people. Uh, he was not particularly well known. Uh, but after his death, Marxism became very, very popular. And that German social democratic party that had written the Goitha program uh, expanded to be a party of millions of people. You had the Labour Party in Britain eventually emerge. Uh, you, you had in France a lot of socialist groups getting popular. And, and these new Marxist organizations, uh, they called themselves the, the second international because the first international had been dominated by ultra-left and adventurist anarchist groups that didn't want to build a mass base among the population. The new grouping, the second international, they didn't use the word communist to describe themselves because they didn't want to be associated with the ultra-lefts. So they called themselves socialists or social democrats. In Germany, you had the Social Democratic Party. In Britain, you had the Labour Party. In Norway, Sweden, you had Social Democratic Parties. And they were the parties of the second international. And Marxism was everywhere, and it, and it w spread w far and wide, and there was a mass socialist movement across Europe, and labor unions were formed, and socialists were getting elected to parliament. But at the same time, at the same time that all this was happening, you didn't have a revolution, and the living standards of workers in Western countries were starting to go up. So what was going on? Why did this happen? Marx had predicted that the gap between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie would just keep getting bigger. The proletariat would keep getting poorer. The bourgeoisie would just keep getting richer. And eventually the workers of Western Europe, France, Britain, Germany, elsewhere would rise up and seize their factories and you'd have a socialist revolution. 
But socialism was everywhere, and that wasn't happening. And in fact, the living standards of workers in Germany and France and the United States were actually starting to go up. So what was happening? Why did this happen? Well, this was the crisis of Marxism. And there were different answers about why it happened. And there was a guy named Edward Bernstein uh, who came forward. And he said it didn't happen because there's not going to be a revolution, because capitalism just kind of naturally turns into socialism. Um, that was revisionism. He said we need to revise Marx. Marx thought there was going to be a revolution. That was wrong. Capitalism just kind of naturally turns into socialism. That's what Karl Marx argued. And he basically argued that the movement is everything. The goal is nothing. He said that because universal male suffrage had been achieved, um, you know, uh, because universal male suffrage had been achieved, every man could vote. There are more capitalists, uh, there are more working class men than there are capitalists. So eventually the workers will outvote the capitalists and one day we'll have a 12-hour workday and the next day we'll have free public education. And socialism is just the sum of reforms. That was revisionism. That was Edward Bernstein. And then you had Sorel. George Sorel came along and he said, well, the problem, the reason we're not having a revolution is because they're trying to build a mass organization. The communists and the socialists are building these mass groups and they're trying to recruit everybody. And they're, they're building these mass groups and labor unions and getting people elected. And that's taking away the revolutionary energy and that revolutions are made by small groups of isolated men. Uh, and these small groups of isolated men are, are violent and they use violence in order to, to inspire people. And, and it's a spiritual question. But it was Lenin who really understood why they weren't having a revolution. And the reason they weren't having a revolution was because uh, capitalism was moving toward imperialism. It's monopoly stage. Capitalism was moving toward the stage of imperialism. The big corporations and banks that dominate the world, uh, you know, they were, they were emerging out of Western Europe and out of the United States. And because these big corporations, these cartels, trusts, and syndicates, as Lenin calls them, because they're based uh, in Western Europe and the United States, uh, they're expanding all over the world. And they're not just making profits, they're making super profits. And what they're doing is they're going to India and they're going to Africa and they're going to Asia and they're going to China and they're going to different countries and they're preventing them from developing. They're holding back their development and they're beating them down and forcing them to remain in poverty as captive markets. And then it's banks, finance capitalists become dominant over industrial capital. And they begin to engage in what he calls the export of capital. It used to be the countries exported goods. You know, they exported goods like, you know, like, like, you know, cloth or, or barrels or, or hammers or whatever. They, they, they had products and they sold them. But now, instead of exporting products, they were exporting companies, the export of capital. And companies based in Britain and companies based in France and companies based in the United States were dominating the world. The export of capital was the defining feature. And because the capitalists and the corporations based in the West were dominating the entire world, spreading their tentacles all across the planet, uh, because they were doing that, um, they were making super profits. Uh, they could afford to pay the workers at home higher wages. And so among the skilled workers, like the craftsmen, you know, the, those with, you know, the, the bricklayers, pipe fitters, plumbers, people that had a skilled trade, they started to get a higher wage. And because they saw their living standards go up, they started to align more with their bosses and less with the workers around the world. 
And that, you know, in the United States, the workers who were not white, were black, were Latino, workers who were not born in the United States, workers who were immigrants from Italy or Eastern Europe or were Roman Catholic, um, they were discriminated against. Whereas the quote unquote native born workers who had quote unquote skilled jobs, uh, they, uh, they got higher pay. And this stratification of the labor movement, dividing it between the skilled and the unskilled, the English speaking and the non-English speaking, the white and the black, the, uh, the foreign born and the native born, uh, dividing the working class, stratifying the working class, uh, that was ultimately the creation of the aristocracy of labor because you had a section of the working class that because they saw their living standards rising, they were loyal to empire and they weren't loyal to revolution and to the working class. And the labor unions became dominated by these labor aristocrats because they had more money and their unions were winning more victories because the bosses could afford to pay them more. And the American Federation of Labor in the United States uh, was dominated by the labor aristocrats. It banned black people, it banned women. Uh, you know, it was, it was only, it was a men's only union for only skilled workers. And in Britain and in France and in Germany, the aristocracy of labor became to dominate the un labor unions. Um, and the aristocracy of labor was not revolutionary because they felt that imperialism benefited them. Uh, they saw their wages going up as American corporations and British corporations were dominating the planet. And so you had this divide, this stratification of the working class between the aristocracy of labor and the, the lower and deeper real masses, the broad masses of the workers. And this was a divide in the working class. Um, and this divide ultimately resulted in World War One. Before World War One, all the socialists of all the world gathered at this, and the Second International had a big conference, and they swore they would never support any war. They said, if the, the British capitalists want to send us to war, we'll say, no, we'll never kill other workers. And if the American capitalists want to send us to war, we'll never go to war. If the German capitalists want to send us to war, we'll never go to war. And they all swore that they would never support a capitalist war. They would never support a capitalist war. But then when the war crisis broke out, you know, when it actually mattered, not when they were just having a conference talking about it, but when the war crisis broke out, all of a sudden they made excuses. The German capitalists made excuses. The French capitalists, uh, the French, the French communists and the socialists made excuses. The, the German Social Democratic Party made excuses. The American socialists made excuses. The, the British made excuses. And all of these parties that were dominated by the aristocracy of labor, sold out and supported World War I. And 20 million workers died in a war. 20 million workers died in a war that would never have happened if it weren't for the socialists. The socialists could have stopped the war. The labor unions and the socialist parties were big enough that if they had really come together and stuck to their ground, they could have stopped the war, but they didn't. They didn't stop the war. Um, how to respond to dogmatic Marxists who call everything revisionist. All right. All right. And they couldn't, they didn't stop the war. And that's why Lenin. Lenin said that the Second International was a stinking corpse, a stinking corpse that had betrayed the working class, and uh, it was not a revolutionary movement. 
but there were some exceptions. Rosa Luxemburg in Germany, she stood against the war and she went to prison for opposing the war. She published the Junius pamphlet, this revolutionary pamphlet exposing and denouncing World War I. And Eugene Debs, he also opposed the war and, and he, he went to prison for it. They threw him in prison for an anti-war speech he gave in Canton, Ohio. Um, and, uh, and the Bolsheviks, they opposed the war and they stood against the war. Um, and there were a minority of socialists who stood against the war. And it's a lot like today. You know, we have these fake socialists, bread tube, that speak in the name of socialism, but they support U.S. imperialism. They want more guns to go to Ukraine. They want to help the U.S. imperialists beat back Russia. Uh, they are loyal to the U.S. imperialists in their war against uh, Russia, a country rising out of poverty. They're loyal to the U.S. imperialists in their war against China, right? It's very similar to today. These are, these are, wealthier people. They're from Beverly Hills. They're from Northern Virginia, like ContraPoints. Um, and as far as they're concerned, uh, you know, uh, socialism just means a, a worker cooperative scheme. Or I think in the movie Reds, uh, John Reed says that, the so that these people, he points to the Socialist Party, the ones that sold out and supported the war. He says, these people think Karl Marx just wrote a good antitrust law, right? That they've taken the revolutionary essence out of Marxism. And they've turned Marxism into a movement to make capitalism and imperialism more efficient. Uh, that's what they believe. Um, and, you know, I mean, just, you know, you listen to the bread tubers, they just want an employee stock ownership program, right? They think Karl Marx just wrote a good antitrust law. They don't understand that it's about standing against the bosses and their wars. It's about standing against the imperialists. So the Bolsheviks, they stood against the war. They were against the war. And there were a lot of people in Russia that were against World War I. Why? Because Germany is right next to Russia. And German businesses were doing business with a lot of Russians. And, you know, Russia was dominated by American banks and British banks. But a lot of Russian business owners and a lot of Russians themselves didn't really feel like the Germans were their enemies. Um, and so there was mass anti-war sentiment in Russia. And, you know, the soldiers in the Russian military didn't want to fight. Uh, they were losing the war. And uh, amid this crisis, um, you know, there was a feeling that the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas II, was incompetent. He was not a good leader. And so when, there was a strike against the war. The Bolsheviks called a strike against the war in February of 1917. They called a strike. And usually when there was a strike, what would happen is the, the, the military would come and, and beat up and arrest all the, uh, the strikers. However, what happened was uh, the Bolsheviks, they had their anti-war strike. And the police went in to arrest them. But then the Cossacks, uh, the horses, uh, the, the cavalry, you know, the soldiers that, uh, that ride horses, went in and protected the strikers. And they cut off the heads of, of some of these police who were arresting the Bolshevik strikers, cut off their heads with swords. And, and that sent a message to the working people all over St. Petersburg. It sent a message that, uh, that, that, that it's okay to go on strike. And so pretty soon, workers all over St. Petersburg were on strike. And the streets were filled with people chanting against the czar, down with the czar, down with the war. And so the czar Nicholas II stepped down and the government of Russia uh, was overthrown. And a new government, a provisional government was declared. Uh, and a provisional government that was going to write a new constitution emerged. Kerensky's government, Kerensky's government. But they continued the war. They were still fighting in World War I. And the Bolsheviks were against the war. and the majority of the capitalists and rich people in Russia were in favor of the war. So 
Lenin came back to Russia, and Lenin came back to Russia, and he actually was supported in doing so by German intelligence, a German intelligence officer named Alexander Parvis, uh, who had been kind of the handler and advisor of Leon Trotsky. Alexander Parvis, who was working for the German secret police, gave money to Lenin, and he put Lenin on a train, and he sent Lenin back to Russia. Lenin had been in exile. And when Lenin got back to Russia, he said, now is our moment. And he came out, it was April that Lenin showed up. Uh, he came back to Russia, to the Finland station, as they say. He came back to Russia. And when he got to Russia, he gave his famous April thesis. And he said, if we're going to win this thing, we have to change our actions really dramatically. And he whipped the Bolsheviks up into shape. And he said, we have to completely change how we operate. We can't call ourselves social democrats anymore because the social democrats sold out and supported the war. We've got to call ourselves the Communist Party. And we got to emphasize that we are against the war. And we got to say all power to the Soviets, these councils that the workers created in their revolt with these Soviets. We got to say all power to the Soviets. And so the Bolsheviks were against the war and they were leading strikes against the war. And there were uprisings going on. And so within the, the, the military, uh, you know, there was a section of the Russian military, it was led by Alexander Kornilov. And Kornilov said, we need to have a big military dictatorship. We need to have an authoritarian regime to crush all these protests going on. And we got to get rid of the provisional government. We got to crush the provisional government. And so Alexander Kornilov, Kornilov, his army started marching back towards St. Petersburg and they were going to establish a, a military dictatorship, like fascism was going to be established. They were going to crush the provisional government and they were going to crush all the anti-war protests and they were going to aggressively continue Russia in World War I. And so, of course, a lot of these forces in, in Russia that weren't Bolsheviks were panicking. And so they were getting the city of St. Petersburg ready for this attack by Alexander Kornilov and, and Kornilov's reaction, the military. They were marching toward the city. And as they were marching toward the city, uh, the Bolsheviks, uh, they formed militias uh, to defeat uh, Kornilov. And it got to the point that the Bolsheviks' militia was bigger than the actual military of the Russian provisional government. And the, the government uh, was started handing over uh, the weapons and guns to the Bolsheviks. And as it became clear, the Bolsheviks had locked down St. Petersburg and they were gonna give Kornilov, Alexander Kornilov the fight of his life. Soldiers started defecting and, and turning, their, turning their guns around and refusing to go march on St. Petersburg. There was widespread defections. People, people in Kornilov's army, they just walked away and they quit. So pretty soon it became clear that Kornilov wasn't coming. He was not going to come march on St. Petersburg. He wasn't going to set up his military dictatorship. The Kornilov reaction in September of 1917 was defeated. And at that point, the Bolsheviks said, we've got a bigger army than the, uh, the, the provisional government does. And we've got our Soviets. And so they, in October, they declared the Soviet government from Lake Geneva to the Finland station. <laughs> Pet shop boys, yes. And they declared, they declared the Soviet government and Soviet Russia was born. You had the Russian revolution. That's how it happened. By being against the war, by becoming, by, by aligning strategically with different sections of the capitalist class, by building up your own ranks and your own forces, making an alliance here while you build up your own forces, making an alliance there while you build up your own forces, constantly building up their own forces while making strategic alliances. Eventually you had the Russian revolution. And then you had the Soviet Union. And when the, when the Russian Revolution happened, at that point, 
the Bolsheviks said, well, we got to form a new international, a third international, the communist international. So they formed the common turn or the communist international. And it was parties around the world that were aligned, aligned with the Soviet Union. And that's how the third international came into existence. And the third international was parties that were supporting the Bolsheviks, that accepted Lenin's understanding of imperialism and, uh, and, and understood how the Bolsheviks had come to power, were guided by Marxism-Leninism, the ideology of the Bolsheviks, right? That's how you had the third international. And that's, that's Marxism-Leninism. The ideology of Marxism-Leninism, it's not like something you can just explain. It is the development from, from socialism to scientific socialism, from scientific socialism and Marxism to the crisis in the Second International, to the collapse of the Second International, and the rise of Bolshevism and the theory of imperialism, to the creation of the Soviet Union. This is Marxism-Leninism, this understanding that capitalism has entered its monopoly stage of imperialism, and that whole nations are fighting to be free from imperialism. It's this understanding uh, that, uh, that opposing the wars is essential, and you must stand against the capitalist wars. It's holding on to the understanding that it is a struggle for political power. It's not simply the sum of reforms. It's not about, about tweaking capitalism a little bit here and there, and then it eventually turns into socialism. No, it's a, a struggle for political power by the working class. Um, the understanding of the aristocracy of labor, uh, the understanding that nations have the right to self-determination. Um, you know, this, this is all, this is the, the foundations of the ideology that all of us all of us are studying and, and coming to terms with. And uh, that's the movement of scientific socialism. And that's what I am standing firm on. And that's what I, I am standing against bread to. Vosch doesn't believe in this. He believes imperialism is good. He supports the capitalists in their wars. Uh, he, he doesn't understand this. You know, contrapoints. You know, the ideology that these bread tubers espouse is a, is a childish ideology. In their mind, it's just a question of good people and bad people. And the good people are called people who agree with them. And the bad people are Nazis and fascists. And it's just a question of exposing the vast fascist conspiracy against the good people and exposing that everyone who ever disagrees with them is secretly a fascist. And if we can just purge all the bad people and cancel them and, and then everything will be okay. That's not Marxism. That is not Marxism at all. Marxism brings with it a scientific understanding of classes and class struggle, the roots, the roots of the capitalist crisis and the problem of overproduction and the falling rate of profit and the general law of capitalist accumulation. This is scientific socialism, what I'm preaching here, what I'm explaining to people here. And I'm going to continue preaching it because it's the most important idea in history. It, this, this idea defined the 20th century. It was the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution. And, and the Cuban Revolution and the Korean Revolution and the struggles of people all across the planet for national liberation against the imperialists, that defined the 20th century from 1917 all the way up to 1991 with the fall of the Soviet Union. And scientific so socialism is also defining the 21st century. The rise of China is because of 21st century socialism. It's because of socialism, right? Review crypto-communist rock bands I, I mean, I know The Clash. That's the only one of those bands I know, Andre. I'll talk about The Clash. I don't, I don't know Depeche Mode. I don't really know Pet Shop Boys, Nina. I don't know Bronski Beat, but I do know The Clash. So I can talk about The Clash. How about that? I'll talk about The Clash, Andre. I apologize. I don't know my punk rock the way I should. Um, but scientific socialism is what made China what it is today.
The scientific socialism is what made, uh, what made the Bolivarian countries what they are today. It wasn't for the Cuban Revolution. It wasn't for the intervention of scientific communists in Venezuela and Nicaragua and Bolivia and elsewhere. We wouldn't have the, uh, the, rise, of, the rise of Bolivarianism in Latin America. Uh, and, you know, so many governments in Africa are, are heavily inspired by Marxism, Leninism. Look at Angola on uh, the MPLA and all they've done to raise people out of poverty. That's because they're led by a scientific Marxist party, the MPLA, the, the Movement for the Liberation of the People of Angola. Uh, you know, you talk about Zimbabwe and how they've redistributed the land of the white farmers and how they've nationalized the diamond mines. Now they're cooperating with China to, to build new infrastructure, you know. Zimbabwe, that was the, you know, comes out of the, the struggle against the apartheid state of Rhodesia, uh, the, you know, and it was, it was led by scientific Marxists in the ZANU, PF, the ZANU party, the Zimbabwe African National Union, Namibia, and SWAPO, the Southwest African People's Organization, the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, you know, that was led by scientific socialists. Um, you know, it was revealed at the time that he died that Nelson Mandela had been a member of the Central Committee of the South African Communist Party. You know, um, Nelson Mandela loved Gaddafi. Nelson Mandela loved the Soviet Union and Stalin. Nelson Mandela, you know, he loved Fidel Castro and he, he loved North Korea. You know, I, I said to Vosh, you would have punched Nelson Mandela in the face, and he would have. He says that anybody who supports the Soviet Union is the same as a Nazi. Anyone who supports Cuba or, or North Korea is the same as a Nazi. Well, that includes the great Nelson Mandela. Um, you know, Nelson Mandela and the struggle against apartheid, that was a Marxist-Leninist struggle. And, and scientific socialism is really defining the world that we live in, right? It's a little bit different now. You know, Russia is no longer led by Marxists. You have a big communist party in Russia, but, but the majority of those in the government in Russia, uh, you know, um, Gaddafi more of a utopian than scientific. I wouldn't say that, no, but we'll talk about that. I published my own edition of the Green Book. You should read the Green Book. Gaddafi more utopian um you know and um you know i mean i mean it's it's everywhere china's guided by it latin america is guided by it many african countries are heavily influenced by it scientific socialism is the movement uh that will ultimately lead humanity out of the nightmare of capitalism and imperialism now that said i don't think it's going to be the old communist parties the official designated common turn parties that are going to do it i think you know, we're seeing that, you know, China has moved away from the, the common turn way of doing things. And, and the Bolivarian countries have as well. And we had the rise of Baathism in the Middle East. Uh, uh, you know, there are different forms of socialism in the world today. But we have to understand Marxism-Leninism. We have to understand the Marxist-Leninist movement. And that's what we are the continuers of today in the face of the opportunists and social chauvinists. But this is the final point I want to make before I end my opening remarks is that we're never going to be able to out whiz bang the capitalists. They're always going to be able to make better YouTube videos than we can. They're always going to be able to print books that get wider distribution than we get. The only way we can challenge the, the social imperialists and the fake left, the only way we can defeat them is by going lower and deeper to the real masses. That's the only way we can defeat them. Lower and deeper to the real masses by organizing people in their communities, by building organizations of working class power that have real roots among the population. That's how we can defeat these people. You know, with their huge audience, the bread tubers, they have this huge audience, but do you ever see them building organizations? They're, they're all worked up about our conference. When was their conference? When was the bread tube conference? There won't be one. 
right? Or they did have one. It was called the Democratic National Convention. They'll never have a conference because they're not, they're rodeo clowns. They're there to distract people, to, to offer crass entertainment, to line up people to support Joe Biden. They're not building political infrastructure because that's not what they're there for. That's what we're there for. And I, I actually, I was talking to a good friend of mine last night, Robert, if you're watching, uh, shout out to you, Robert, great guy. And uh, I actually, in the conversation, I was reminded of the Communist Party organization on, on uh, the Communist Party manual on organization. I'm actually going to put it in the chat if we can find it, um, because it's really important. When the Communist Party um, was a strong organization back in the 1930s, they published this book about how they organized. I'm, I'm putting it in the chat right now. The Communist Party manual on organization. Paste. Right? I'm, I'm putting it in the chat right now. This is how the Communist Party organized. They had what they called cell structure. They had party cells, and now they call them party clubs. Uh, and every, every party member was a member of a cell. And the cells had five members. And the cell was accountable to a higher uh, organizer who was then accountable to a higher organizer. And they didn't have branches. They had cells. And the cells were based in neighborhoods and they were based in workplaces. Um, and you had cell structure. And it was in the community. And if you, you know, if you were in a neighborhood, there was a party cell in the neighborhood with five members. The fight for socialism is the future of humanity. The capitalists will do anything and everything to stop us, but we will win. You were absolutely right, Christian. And um, the cell structure, it was about organizing in your neighborhood. There'd be five communists in a neighborhood and they had to know everybody in the neighborhood they had to know everything that was going on in the neighborhood. They kept track of the neighborhood and what was going on, the party cell. Um, and then they, they held each other accountable. That's not the way most leftist groups in the United States organize now. They have branches. You know, there might be one group for New York City and one group, but, but cell structure, right? Organizing at a community level and doing community level work and then functioning, doing their community level work, embedded in the community, doing their community level work in conjunction with national organizations. This is a really effective way of organizing. Um, and it's a, a way of getting things done. Um, and the Communist Party in the 1930s was very effective. The communists in Vietnam were very effective. Communists in Cuba and, and, and Korea were very effective because of their cell structure. So I, I would encourage people to go read, read the Communist Party Manual on Organization. Uh, because you will get an understanding of how, you won't get this from reading, reading the, the, the classical texts. This is more about how the group actually functioned, right? And they published, uh, you know, a, a, a more, a more, you know, a more modern edition of, of the book, you know, in more recent years, but they're not as good as they used to be. But I would encourage people to go check out the Communist Party Manual on Organization, because that is the only way we can defeat the social imperialists, the social sellouts, the social traitors, the social fascists. That's the only way we can defeat them, ultimately, uh, is by going lower and deeper to the real masses, by building a real organization, real communities of solidarity, uh, because they'll never do that, because these people are just entertainers, they're actors, they're rodeo clowns. They don't really want to build an organization. The only organization they want to build is the Democrats. But if we can build real political infrastructure among the broad masses of people, uh, we can actually change things. So I would encourage people to check out the Communist Party Manual on Organization. I just posted the link in the chat. I think you can order it online. I think there's print editions of it. You can probably order on Amazon if you really want it. But, you know, it's all available online. I just posted it there. And that, that's really important. So that's kind of where I wanted to end my opening remarks. Um, hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notifications bell. And then I guess uh, now 
we'll do the roll call and then I'll start answering all these super chat questions I've got here. So roll call, I'll call you out, names and locations. Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. Names and locations. Who's with us tonight? Who's with us tonight? Who is with us? Um, who is with us? I'm just waiting. Naples, Florida, Harold Sullivan. There we go. Kieran from San Diego. Very, very good. Very, very good. Who else is with us tonight? Names and locations. Names and locations. San Francisco, Andrew Philly, JT24 in Mississippi, Michael in Ithaca, New York. Shout out to you, Michael. Good friend of the program. Redneck Red, uh, Balthazar in Oakland, Syracuse, Mark Jones in Syracuse, Texas, Tristan in Maryland, Bermuda, Bob Troy in New York, St. St. Louis, Bradley Wasser, Sam in Ottawa, Elias from Wisconsin, Irish Anger in New York, Ian in Beverly Hills, L. El Ching, uh, Robert from Hawaii, Temple City, California, NYC, Queens, Diana, uh, Wells, Nevada, Quebec, Canada, Ethan and John from West Virginia, uh, Jess, from, Jess Sagalaw from Florida, Kendall from San Diego, Dallas, Texas, Isaiah. Uh, we got, uh, who else? BFE, uh, Tolstroy, Danks in Romania, David from Northern Thailand near Myanmar, Micah from Las Vegas, Shoney from Los Angeles, Upstate New York, B from Cleveland. Very, very good, folks. Very, very good. Very, very good. Very good, folks. Good to have you all with us, right? Um, we got JT24 in Mississippi. We got Gabby Hernandez in Chicago. Uh, we got, who else? Rice from Adelaide, Australia. Hungary. Tara Hoot. Marissa from Washington State. Providence, Canada. Burian, Washington. Nathaniel from Washington. Wow, Los Angeles, Pomona, California, right? P Cleveland Pirate Alex, um, very, very good. Pirate Alex, Cleveland, right? Uh, David Rennie from Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, Lily in Arizona. Jake in New York City, very, very good. Zephyr from Eugene, Oregon, uh, very, very good. Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky. Justin in China. Trigger warning in Alaska. West Virginia, London, United Kingdom. Dino. Dino. Dino is in London, United Kingdom. Uh, Burn, North Carolina. AJ from NJ. Very, very good. Thomas from Sacramento. Christian in the land of the Oaks. The land of the Oaks. The land of the Oaks. Cyprus. Cyprus. Very, very good. Got folks, folks in Cyprus. Oxnard, California. Very good, folks. All right. Now I'm going to start answering your super chat questions. I hope my voice doesn't give out, but that's okay. First super chat question, uh, Hoja-ism. What do I think of Hoja-ism? Well, you know, I actually, you know, it's worth looking into. Um, you know, there, uh, there's, a, I actually really enjoyed the history of the Party of Labor of Albania, which is like the, the official history textbook of the Albanian Communist Party published uh, under Enver Hoxha. It was published in the 60s. You really get a sense for how uh, the communists of Albania had a tactical understanding. They were always one step ahead of the bourgeoisie. When the Nazis invaded Albania, they formed a liberation army, and then they declared a provisional government. You can read how there was always the capitalists, the non-communist uh, liberation fighters against the Nazis were always behind them by one step. They were always one step ahead, and that was strategic. Um, 
Uh, and, you know, Albania, like many countries throughout Eastern Europe, uh, when they had their revolution and they, they had socialism, they brought electricity to the country, they wiped out illiteracy, they raised people out of poverty, they did some really good stuff. The thing about Albania was that, you know, originally Stalin wanted Albania to be part of Yugoslavia. But Enver Hoxha, he wrote this book called With Stalin, where he talks about meeting with Stalin and explaining that the Albanian people are not Slavs uh, and they're not part of Yugoslavia. And there was this long-standing rivalry between Yugoslavia and Albania, right? Yugoslavia in 1948, Tito denounced Stalin. Tito declared that Stalin was the enemy. He aligned with the U.S. imperialists against the Soviet Union. Well, Albania, they did the opposite. They said they, they really loved Stalin and they were very loyal to Stalin. So then in 1956, uh, after Stalin had died, you had Khrushchev got up and denounced denounced uh, Stalin and accused Stalin of a lot of things, you know, that, that, that the Soviet Union had long denied. So a couple of years later, China broke with the Soviet Union and, and said that they were supporting Stalin still and that Khrushchev was a revisionist who was selling out communism. Albania was the only country in Europe that sided fully with uh, China. Now, there were some countries that were neutral. There were a lot of countries that were neutral, but Albania was the only country that was 100% on China's side. And, uh, you know, Albania and China uh, were against the Soviet Union. Um, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Khrushchev attempted to have a coup in Albania against Enver Hoxha, attempted to have a coup against him. They cut off diplomatic relations. They economically isolated Albania. So the Soviet Union was pretty bad to Albania. Um, and in response to that, um, you know, Albania was aligned with China. Um, then in the 70s, uh, in the 1970s, China, uh, Albania started to become more critical of China. When China was starting to, you know, starting to align with the United States in the 70s against the Soviet Union, Albania ultimately started denouncing China. And so in 1978, Enver Hoxha published his book called Imperialism and the Revolution imperialism in the revolution, and he denounced Mao Zedong thought and said Mao Zedong thought was a revisionist theory and declared that Albania was the only socialist country in the world. All the other countries that were socialist, Cuba, Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, China, all of them were revisionist. They were not really socialist. Albania was the one true communist party in the world, and they were economically isolated from the world. Nobody would trade with them. And you have to remember that Albania is not a big country. It's like 3 million people, maybe 6 million people, but it's not a big population. It's a very small country. And they were basically, they had no one to trade with them. The Soviets wouldn't trade with them. Soviet allies wouldn't trade with them. China wouldn't trade with them. The United States wasn't going to trade with them. So Albania kind of stood isolated in the world. And so in response to being isolated, they tried to claim, well, okay, even though we're isolated, even though we don't have much wealth here, we're going to be the most egalitarian. Right? And this is a big mistake. And this is the biggest mistake that communists made in the 20th century. You cannot build an egalitarian society in poverty. The basis of breaking down inequality is wealth. This is what Karl Marx says in Critique of the Goethe Program, that only when the, the springs of cooperative wealth flow more abundantly, only when labor becomes life's prime want, only then can the narrow horizon of bourgeois right be over, overcome. And the Soviet Union made this mistake a little bit during Stalin's time after World War II. And, and Che Guevara made this mistake in Cuba. That's why his economic policies in, in, in Cuba in the early 60s, they didn't work out so well. Pol Pot made this mistake. 
Uh, you know, China during the Cultural Revolution made this mistake. Albania also made this mistake. They tried to build a very, very equal society in poverty. Well, you can't do that because the basis of inequality is scarcity. When there's not enough to go around, somebody's going to have more than somebody else. The way that you break down inequality, the way that you break down inequality is by creating abundance, right? And when there's enough to go around, the differences between people become less and less important. And this is, this is an important part of Marxism that is not understood, that scarcity is the basis of inequality. And overcoming scarcity leads to equality, right? And that communism, the higher stage of communism, in which all inequality breaks down, there's no division between mental and physical labor, men and women absolutely equal, there's no state, no government even, that's based on huge amounts of material abundance. And that was lost because countries like Albania, because countries like Cuba, because countries like the Soviet Union, because they were isolated from the world economy and they were trying to build a socialist society on the basis of not having much economic development. Because of that, they were trying to build a totally equal society in poverty. And so Albania did that. And the 1980s in Albania were quite disastrous because no one would trade with Albania. And then in, in response to that, they were trying to declare total equality in poverty. And it didn't work out so well. Um, you know, and then in the 90s, you had Enver Hoxha died. And after the death of Enver Hoxha, there was like a fight in the party. And eventually they overthrew socialism in Albania. Um, now, polls show in Albania, a lot of people say life was better in Albania before the, the fall of socialism. So I don't want to completely declare that Albania was a complete disaster. I mean, they did wipe out illiteracy. They did raise people out of poverty. Um, they did empower women. Um, they, did, they did a lot for the country. But ultimately, they were, unable to, they were unable to really continue industrializing after they cut themselves off from the whole world in the, in the late 70s. And they were trying to do something that you can't do. You cannot build. You cannot build a completely egalitarian society in poverty. And that is my main disagreement. What I think is interesting is that Albania really did try to stay true to the Stalin model of communism. They were really, they saw the Soviet Union was moving away from it. They saw that China was moving away from it. And they, in their minds, they really were kind of following this idea that if you do exactly what Stalin did in the 1930s, everything will be okay. Uh, that's what they did. And that's anti-revisionism. That's, that's not the only strand of anti-revisionism. That's one strand of anti-revisionism. Um, and so they were, they were basically, uh, they were trying to be an anti-revisionist uh, government, right? They, they just argued that if you stay true to what Stalin did in the 30s, that's the best way to do things. Well, the thing is that, that, okay, like on the one hand, what Stalin did in the 1930s was Stalin carried out real economic miracles. The Soviet Union went from being one of the poorest countries in the world to being an industrial superpower. The Soviet Union... While the rest of the world was having a great depression, they were, you know, having huge breakthroughs in, in art and the, some of the best films ever made. You know, they were, they were, you know, building new universities and they were building the biggest power plants in the world, the biggest steel mills in the world. Amazing things were being done in the Soviet Union during the 1930s. Utterly amazing things, right? And a whole country was becoming a modern industrial country, highest rates of growth in the world. So... You have, to, you have to stand up against that. And that's why it can sometimes be tempting to, to say, oh, well, what Stalin did in the 30s was perfect. Well, it wasn't. 
right? There's a reason that after Stalin, you had Khrushchev. There's a reason that the Soviet Union started stagnating in the 60s and 70s. Their economy kept growing, but they started to have big internal problems. And there's a reason the Soviet Union fell and that, you know, that, that socialism is going to be different. The Paris Commune of 1871 was not the same as what the Bolsheviks did. And when, when Stalin, you know, came into power in the Soviet Union, he adjusted it. He defeated the Trotskyites. He defeated the Bukharanites. And Stalin's model of socialism is very different. And what Mao did in China was very different than what Stalin did. And what China did after the death of Mao with Deng Xiaoping is very different. And what the Bolivarians are doing now is very different. And that socialism is going to be different everywhere. You can't just copy, you know, someplace where they had socialism and they had great successes and say, that's how it should be. You can't do that. You can't do that. That's dogmatism. That's what dogmatism really is. And, and the Soviet Union during Stalin's time, we're told so many lies about it, right? We're told that everyone was just poor and starving the whole time. Never did they have any success. So it can be tempting when you see the real evidence of the economic miracles that went on there, the industrialization of the whole country. It can be tempting to say, well, we should do that everywhere. But that's dogmatism. And that's not where it's at. There's a reason that China is the way it is. There's a reason that, that Cuba and, and North Korea want to be more like China. There's a reason that Vietnam is the way it is. There's a reason that, that Venezuela and Nicaragua are the way they are. And that socialism is changing. And we've come to understand that, that while you know, that Stalin model is very effective in industrializing countries and electrifying countries and wiping out illiteracy, building basic industries, building power plants. It's very good. But after you overcome that initial stage of industrialization, you start to have problems, right? You start to have a, a little bit of a problem. And ultimately, ultimately, 21st century socialism does have room for a market sector. There needs to be a market sector at this time. Not always. And maybe that market sector would be better if it's worker cooperatives. There's been a lot of worker cooperatives established in Nicaragua and in Venezuela, um, you know, uh, you know and, and cooperatives are very, very important. So there are different ways of understanding all of this. But ultimately, right, what Albania was trying to do is they were trying to just hold on to purely implementing what Stalin had done in the 1930s in the Soviet Union in Albania. And it didn't work. Uh, you know, I mean, ultimately, it caused them a lot of problems in the 80s, and and then they were overthrown. So there's plenty we can learn from it. And I really enjoy a lot of Enver Hoxha's speeches and writings. There's plenty you can learn from it. But I'm not a Hoxhaist, um, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's worth studying. You should study all of this stuff. You should study all of it, but blindly follow none of it and figure out, be working to figure out a model that could actually work in the United States. That's what we should do. We should study all this. We should read Enver Hoxha. We should read Mao. We should read anarchists, Trotskyites. We should study all of this stuff. Gaddafi's Green Book, Baathist Arab Socialism, Bolivarianism, Social Democracy. We should blindly, we should study all of it, but blindly follow none of it. That's my position. All right, next question. All right. How can an Amazon labor union help the working class? Well, first, the first people it's going to help, the Amazon labor union, are going to be the workers at Amazon. Uh, they are going to benefit because now they're no longer hire at will. They have a contract, right? They're going to have a contract. If you don't have a union, your boss can be like, see ya, you know. But now with a union contract, the Amazon workers will have a clear, they'll have rights on the job. They'll have a document that says you can't just be fired for anything. You can be fired for this reason. 
you know, their pay will be negotiated. It won't just be the boss says, I'm giving you this. That's it. No, their pay will be negotiated with collective bargaining, right? That's a victory. Uh, so there's going to be more job security for the Amazon workers. And their pay and their conditions will be negotiated. Uh, the boss will, will have to sit down with the union and agree the terms of their employment. Won't simply be whatever the, the bosses, Jeff Bezos, feels like doing. It won't simply be that. It'll be negotiated. That's part of it. And the next thing about it, the next thing about it will be, how will it benefit the working class? Well, it'll benefit other people because all of those Amazon workers have families. So a lot of them have kids. A lot of them are married. And those families are going to have more money and more job security and more income security because one of the people they work with is not just working at will, but they're working with a union contract. And the communities that these working people live in, there'll be more money and more security, more job security, and then the communities that they live in will benefit. And the small businesses in those communities will benefit. Um, in a lot of ways, it's going to benefit everybody. It'll benefit everybody. Uh, that Amazon has a union that'll benefit the whole community. The wages of all workers will go up, uh, you know, uh, because because the workers at Amazon that have a union are getting paid a certain wage. Other employers are going to have to offer more pay to their workers. Their workers will say, well, I can go work at Amazon where I've got a union contract or I can go work for you. And so they're going to have to offer better pay to their employees, even if they don't have a union. So, yes, a rising tide in this case lifts all boats. The Amazon workers getting a union benefits the Amazon workers. It benefits their families. It benefits the neighborhoods they live in. It benefits workers in other service sector jobs who are, who are in, the, in the orbit. It's benefit. It's good for everybody. It's great. The Amazon workers union is great. I salute uh, the people who've been involved in that struggle. It's tremendous what they have done. Uh, shame on AOC for stabbing them in the back and betraying them. And it shows you don't have to align with AOC. You don't have to kiss the ass of the Democrats. Look, you know, my attitude toward AOC when she got in there, and you know, I met her long before she ever got elected, when she was just running uh, for the Democratic nomination, she seemed like a nice person, um, you know. And and I I don't I wanted to believe in AOC, and this is really important. We know AOC is a fraud. She's pro imperialist. She's a sellout. She's a traitor to the working class. You know, we know that. But the point is, I didn't want her to be that. You don't want to be the kind of person who wants that. Let me emphasize: you don't want to be the kind of person who wants everyone to be a fraud, who wants everyone to be a traitor. You don't want that, right? You don't want to be that kind of person. You want to see potential allies anywhere you can find them. Anywhere. You want to see potential friends of the working class movement, friends of anti-imperialism, anywhere you can find them. So I gave AOC a million chances. And when she first got in, she seemed like there might be some hope. But there's not hope. But you don't want to be that kind of person that just says, oh, screw it. This is meaning. You don't want to be that kind of person. You don't want to be that kind of person because we need allies way more than we need enemies. You don't win anything by being right on the internet. Look at me. I'm here on the internet. I think I'm right. Whoop-de-doo. What does that mean? How does that advance the working class movement in any way for me to be right on the internet? It doesn't. What advances the working class movement is if we build real infrastructure. We build real communities of solidarity. We build mass movements that create real change. That's how things change. So if your attitude when somebody like AOC gets elected and sounds like they might be good is screw them. Oh, they're a phony. They're a fraud. You're not actually going to get anything done. AOC is a phony. AOC is a fraud. I will never vote for her. I will never campaign for her. She has completely let us down, right? She and her background, she was a plant. 
we now know. She worked for Teddy Kennedy. She was international relations school. She's not a socialist. She's just, you know, she's one of these CIA liberals. But, but we know that now, okay? But the, I don't want people to look at this and say, you know, screw it. Because I'm going to tell you, folks, there was a Labor Party guy. Got elected, and he seemed at first many people thought he was just another Labor Party guy, and he got elected. But then somebody came to his office to talk to him about Palestine, and he listened to the Palestinian guy talk. And as a result of that, he started speaking up for Palestine, and then he started speaking out about no, uh, other issues. And eventually, he was against the Iraq War, against the Iraq War, and got kicked out of the Labor Party for opposing the Iraq War. And that person is my friend George Galloway. That's my friend, George Galloway. And imagine, you know, imagine when George Galloway first got elected years and years ago, if people had just said, oh, he's a fraud, he's in the Labor Party. You know, look how much, how he turned into George Galloway. He's amazing, right? But he, when he started out, he seemed like just kind of a regular Labor Party, social Democrat, whatever. But he, he started speaking up about Palestine and he, he learned more about politics. He, and look at George Galloway and how he's developed over the years, right? People can emerge to play good roles, right? And George Galloway is an amazing figure, right? You know, and he politically, I mean, he's, he's stood with the Muslim community and he's one of the bravest anti-imperialists. I mean, I remember when I was in Cleveland, I, I mentioned this to George when we started talking because he didn't know me then. Years ago, I was in Cleveland, um, left movement in Chile. Um, years ago when I was in Cleveland, You know, I went, I, I heard that George Galloway, former member of parliament, or at that point, I think he was a member of parliament in Britain, was going to speak about Palestine. So I went to this event, Cynthia McKinney, all right, we went to this event, went to this event in, in, um, in, in Cleveland, uh, and it was like packed, thousands and thousands of Arab Americans and Palestine supporters were there. And George Galloway, a former member of, I think at that point he was a current member of British Parliament, he gave this amazing speech, brought the house down. It was utterly amazing, right? Charles Barron is a, was a member of city council in New York City. Now he's a member of the New York State General Assembly. Charles Barron is a revolutionary. Charles Barron is a former member of the Black Panther Party. He's got a picture of Lenin in his office. He was a good friend of Gaddafi. He was a good friend of Robert Mugabe. He is a black nationalist socialist revolutionary. And I love Charles Barron. And again, if you were to just say to Charles Barron, oh, he's a Democrat, he's a fraud. Again, this is a guy who stood against the bombing of Libya. This is a guy who, who, who has, I mean, he, he's a revolutionary in every conceivable way, Charles Barron, right? And if your attitude towards somebody like Charles Barron, who, yes, I did campaign for him. Now, I don't campaign for anybody now because I, I am a journalist and that would compromise my integrity as a journalist. You can't campaign or anything like that. But back before I was a journalist, I did campaign. I believe it was 2013. I petitioned and campaigned really hard for Charles Barron. And he was an ally. He's an ally of the working class movement, right? Uh, Cynthia McKinney is, is another person. We'll talk about her later. Cynthia McKinney, um, Dennis Kucinich, there are people that are good friends of the revolutionary working class movement in government. And you can't get into that mindset where everyone's a fraud, everyone's a phony. You got to give people their chance. You should want people to be our allies. You should want people to be good. And that makes it even more disappointing when they're not. And AOC is not our friend. And Ilan Omar is not our friend. And the squad are not our friends. 
And there's no question about it. These people are wokes. They're part of the synthetic left. The woke left are not our friends. All right. We have to get this through our minds. There is this new ideology called wokeism that, that doesn't really believe in class struggle, that doesn't believe in socialism, that just believes there's all these people out there that are fascists and they're like breaking the rules. And so we need to like expel them from our movements because they're not following the rules. Oh my God. They're not using the right words. Oh my God. We got to get rid of them because they're like racist. Oh my God. That has nothing to do with Marxism. That has nothing to do with communism. I don't know what the hell. You hear me clap once. If you hear me clap twice. If you hear me clap three times. That crap has nothing to do with Marxism. That is not the ideology of Gus Hall. That is not the ideology of William Z. Foster. It's not the ideology of the Black Panthers and Huey Newton. It's not the ideology of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. It is a stupid, stupid cult that the imperialists have created. It is, it is thought-stopping, brainwashing rituals. There are these people out there who like, like Putin, but like Putin's like sexist because he's like a big man and we don't have like men. Men can't be socialists. And, um, um, you know, if you're a socialist and they're like reading books by like Lenin and, and like, oh my God, like I can't find transgenderism anywhere in any of Lenin's writings. What a, what a transphobe. Lenin was a transphobe. I mean, these people are not um senator wellstone okay look into look into you know paul wellstone i don't know enough about him these people are not marxists okay the the wokes you know uh you know i mean they are not marxists in any conceivable way and and aoc and Ilan omar they're wokes they're not marxists and what we what we want is something different and honestly look i i, I wasn't i was gonna mention this i've been meaning to mention this for some time the Freedom Road Socialist Organization. This is a group that claims to be a tanky group. Claims to be a tanky group. Right? They claim to be a Marxist-Leninist group. They're aligned with the Workers' Party of Belgium. They, you know, they like Mao. They come out of the Mao Zedong thought tradition. Look at their website the other day. <clears throat> so, look at their website the other day. What's going on right now? We're on the brink of World War III because, you know, the USA is escalating and, and you know, provoking Russia and, and trying, to, trying to provoke a long-term conflict in Ukraine. And, and there's talk of a no-fly zone of the USA going into Ukraine and shooting down Russian planes. And, you know, there's talk of World War III. Meanwhile, gas prices are rising. Working families are struggling to pay their bills. You know, there's going to be food shortages. So what is this so-called Marxist-Leninist group doing? What is Freedom Road Socialist Organization doing? What are they doing? What is their priority? And, and they always, they don't preach communism. They're real activists, right? They're real organizers and activists, right? So what are they doing? You know, since they don't go around explaining socialism to people like we do at CPI, since they only preach to the advanced, right, since they embed themselves in labor unions and, and they pretend they're not socialists, but they're maneuvering, what are they doing? What is Freedom Road Socialist Organization doing? The big struggle that Freedom Road Socialist Organization is involved in is trying to get members of Turning Points USA and Republicans banned from student government in Texas. No, I am not making this up. I have a screenshot to show it. This is where they think the struggle is at. This is where the movement is. You got to make sure that Republicans are not allowed to serve in student government in Texas. This is the biggest, stupidest thing I've ever heard. 
That's what they're focused on. They're not protesting the gas prices. They're not protesting no war with Russia. They're not, they're not demanding the USA withdraw from NATO. Oh, no, they're demanding that there are these people in the college, like student government in Texas, and they like they said something racist. Oh, my God, I've got screenshots. I've got screenshots. They broke a rule, teacher. Uh, can you ban them from the student government? Oh, my God. Oh, this is not communism. And the thing is, I know, I mean, I, it's been a while, but years ago, I used to know a lot of Freedom Road people, okay? There's a lot of real communists in the Freedom Road Socialist Organization. If you're a real communist in the Freedom Road Socialist Organization, get out, okay? I spent eight years in a group that I thought was a communist group, and we focused on, you know, protesting this person, and, and, and you know, and you're not. You're being used, okay? You really believe in Marxism. You really believe in the ideology of William Z. Foster. You really believe in the ideology of Gus Hall. And these people are just, they're, they're trying to embed in wokeism. You can't embed in wokeism. Wokeism is the new fascism. And they, you don't understand. The wokes think that you're a Republican. If you support Russia right now against the U.S. imperialists, they think you're a Nazi, right? Banning Turning Points USA from student government in Texas lays the basis for them banning you. Don't you get it? They think you're the same as a Nazi because you don't support Joe Biden's war. They think working class is a white supremacist code word. They say that anyone who talks about Medicare for all or went to the Medicare for all march is a red brown. Okay. If you're in a group that goes around, that, that goes around, uh, you know, pr demanding that, that Republicans get kicked out of student government because they're racist, you are being used by the enemy. And the fact that they would, they would do that, that's what they're doing with their time. They're not trying to stop the war. They're not trying to fight for working class people in their jobs. They're trying to stop the Republicans. They're joining a woke mob of people. We've got screenshots. We can prove that they're racist. Shut the fuck up. I mean, this is, this is not real Marxism. This is why we're forming the Center for Political Innovation. All of these so-called left groups have just joined the woke cult. And the woke cult doesn't need you, right? They don't need you. They don't need you. You believe in Marx and Lenin and all that. You're, you're not going to influence the wokes. You're not going to recruit them to Marxism. They don't need you. You're being used. You're not making any contribution. You know, I mean, you know, around the time I left the Workers' World Party, and it wasn't even really about this, but like Donald Trump was starting to run for office. And I, and Bernie Sanders was also running for office. And I was saying to the Workers' World Party people, I was angry. I said, why are they learning socialism from Bernie and not from us? Bernie Sanders is not a real socialist. We are. We should be teaching Marxism to our class. And what were they focused on? N not, not teaching Marxism to our class. Not uh, going to Bernie Sanders rallies and trying to engage with the people about real socialism. Oh, no. They were having rallies against Donald Trump and, and calling Donald Trump a Nazi, calling Donald Trump a fascist. And it's like CNN did that. There's no reason to do that. CNN is already doing that. You know, there was nothing revolutionary about marching against Donald Trump, calling him a fascist. That is the, the, not a single revolutionary thing. Okay, you want to march against the raids on immigrants' communities? That's one thing. March against police brutality, which Donald Trump is supporting, got it. But shouting at Trump supporters, calling them Nazis, CNN already does that. You're not making any contribution. You're not making any contribution. And that's what the communist groups do. They, 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 they think that whatever the liberals are doing, they'll do it louder somehow, and then that'll make them the revolutionary vanguard. Wrong.
The liberals are the main enemy at this point. The liberals are the main enemy. Republicans, go tell a Republican that you're you're a communist and you think that Russia is right in standing up to the Ukrainian Nazis. Go tell a, lib a, 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 a liberal that. And they'll be like, oh my God, you should be put in jail. Oh, he's a Putin supporter. Oh my God, he's like, a, he's a Nazi. You know, tell that to a Republican. And they'll be like, okay, I think you're wrong. I think communism is bad. You can debate Republicans. You can have a conversation with them. They think everything's, everyone's a communist. They believe in free market ideology. A lot of times they have anti-immigrant bigotry. But you can actually engage with them. Wokes, you can't engage with them. They just have this, they've been brainwashed. They have this list of rules in their head and they're like, so-and-so has broken the rule. So-and-so deserves to die. Oh, yeah. oh, you believe that, that, that we should fight for higher wages. This violates rule 43, class reductionism. You are Nazi. Kill, kill, kill. I mean, it's like, they don't think. These people are drones. You can't talk to them. You can talk to Republicans. What you hear when you talk to them, you're not going to like. Because they're often backward and not often it's almost always backward almost always anti-communist almost always bigoted but they tend to be motivated at this point by not believing mainstream media not trusting the government not wanting there to be more wars being angry about how these lockdowns have devastated working class communities republicans tend to be people who don't trust the mainstream media meanwhile Nazi. Oh my God. So-and-so has broken the rules. Uh, you cannot break the rules or else that means that you are an evil white supremacist. Oh my God. Oh my God. All right, folks, I got to plug the, the mic back in. So annoying. So annoying. Got the mic back. Can you hear me now? Good. You can hear me. Good, good, good. Um, do you think could be the Che Guevara of Donetsk? I don't know enough about him. Can't comment on that, Clyde. I don't know enough about his case. All righty. All righty. All right. Next, next question. All right. The May 12th nurse march in D.C. I just don't know enough about that march. I, I really don't know enough about it. But thank you, Andre. It's very important. Go and Google it. Find out about it. Andre sent us a super chat asking about the um, the uh, May 12th nurses march in DC. Go look, Google it and learn about it and, and come to your own conclusion. Um, but there you go. There you go. Can you hear me now, folks? Are you getting audio? I should be getting audio now. I had to plug my mic in and out, whatever. All right. Next question. Uh, the amount of censorship we have seen is chilling. How can we retaliate? We need to get on other platforms. We need to get on other platforms. Facebook, uh, Twitter, um, you know, uh, get off. Of, I mean, don't get off of them, right? Stay on them while you can fight for your right to be on there. But, you know, I'm on Rockfin right now. You can watch me streaming on Rockfin. Go and sign up on Rockfin. Um, I'm going to do a lot more exclusive content for the Patreon people. That's one thing that's going to happen. I'm going to do a lot more exclusive content. Um, you know, um, you know, I, I've got a lot more exclusive content. Um, so there you go. Uh, there you go. Um, can you can you be left without communist? Why associate progressiveness with Marxism? That's a good question. Uh, can you be left and not communist? Why associate progressivism with Marxism? Interesting question. 
but yeah, the main thing is we need to, uh, we need to, you know, start using other platforms, right? Um, you know, I mean, I'm going to try to do a lot more exclusive content for my Patreon folks. I'm on Rockfin. Um, and we also need to, uh, we need to stand up in our neighborhoods and in our communities. If you're in school, you need to raise your hand in class and stand up for the truth. Um, and you need to just refuse to be canceled. And just and you also, we need to form our real organization. We at the Center for Political Innovation, we're having real meetups. We're building real communities of solidarity. We got the John Brown volunteers, an outreach team. And we need to, um, we need to you know, form our own our own associations and communities where we can be with each other and support each other and expand our own networks of people that are opposed to the way society is going. That's what needs to be done. All right. Idi Amin. Idi Amin was an individual, I mean, it was kind of a populist military leader uh, who took power. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean... I mean, Idi Amin, right? Ultimately, it was it was socialists who removed him from power. It was Tanzania, uh, I believe. Julius Nyerere ultimately invaded him. There was a civil war, but yeah, Idi Amin was. I mean, there were times where he aligned with socialist countries, but he was really put into power by Israel. Israel had a lot to do with bringing him to power. Uh, he was aligned with the United States, but then he turned against the United States, and he was just one of these military strongmen in Africa uh, who. You know, uh, unfortunately, because of the Cold War, there was, you know, they talked about the proxy wars. There were many African countries where you had factions of the military that were aligned with the Soviet Union and factions of the military that were aligned with China and the United States in the 70s and 80s. Many African countries were divided that way. Uh, and Idi Amin, you know, he took power in alliance with Israel, in alliance with the United States as an anti-communist. But then he pivoted at different points. And there were a lot of these figures like that, right? I mean, it's kind of like what Modi does now. Modi, uh, Erwan, um, you, know, you know, these are leaders that, you know, Duterte in the Philippines, they'll go one way or they'll go another way. And, you know, Idi Amin was never a socialist or a revolutionary. But there were times he was more friendly to socialists and revolutionaries than he was to, um, you know, to, uh, to the West. But he went back and forth based on what was convenient for him. Um, and ultimately it was Julius Nyerere of Tanzania who, who removed him from power. And I have a lot of admiration for Julius Nyerere, um, you know, and, and socialism in Tanzania. Um, so there you go. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of my thoughts on Idi Amin. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of his, but I will say I, one time my wife and I, we started watching the movie, the last King of Scotland, which was a movie about Idi Amin. We turned it off. It was disgusting. It was a caricature, a racist caricature of a dictator. And it was the stupidest thing we'd ever seen. It was disgusting, right? And even though Idi Amin, yeah, he was no good. He was a brutal dictator, whatever. Like, it was still, it's this notion that there are these third world dictators. It's the same kind of caricature that they have of Kim Il-sung. It's a, it's a pro-imperialist narrative. There's no individual who run, makes every decision in a country. None. No matter, no matter how authoritarian and militarized a country is. No matter how authoritarian and militarized a country is. No leader has absolute power. It's never that caricature that we see. And, and that movie, Last King of Scotland, even though it's about a guy I didn't particularly, I don't have any admiration for Idi Amin. I don't think highly of Idi Amin at all. It was still feeding into that pro-imperialist, interventionist narrative um, that's toxic, that justifies war. So we didn't even finish the movie. Um, 
you know, uh, Forrest Whitaker is the actor. And I, I like a lot of Forrest Whitaker's movies, his movie. Um, there was, he made a great movie about the, the Deacons for defense and the black, uh, the black liberation movement. Uh, he made a great movie about, the about, um, about the, the railway workers, what is it? The brotherhood of sleeping car porters and a Philip Randolph, but that movie he made, I'm sorry. I watched that. That was not good. A caricature. It was a caricature. I mean, uh, of an African leader. So there you go. And, and yeah, there's just this whole trope of the dictator, you know, and it's like North Korea, the North Korea is an extreme example of it, but it's a very first worldist racist caricature that justifies their wars, right? Where it's like, oh, these countries have a, a, a strong man who, you know, and I, I mean, it, it's part of this propaganda, um, you know, that yes, Idi Amin was bad. His government was bad. He was not a good guy. Um, but you know, that caricature of like, oh, the brutal dictator and everyone's afraid of him. And I think at one point, like, like he has a, a swimming race where like everyone, like everyone swims before him so that he wins. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like dumb. I mean, you watch this, you know, not good, not good. So there you go. What are the freest countries in 2022? Define freedom. I mean, we're talking economic freedom because that means free market capitalism. We're talking freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Well, not all countries are in the same conditions, right? I mean, to tell a country that's in the middle of a civil war to have freedom of speech and freedom of assembly would be quite ridiculous, right? Um, you know, to tell a country where there's drug gangs and chaos that they have to adopt and have the same level of freedom we have in the West is, is not the same. But is, is freedom, you know, economic freedom in, the, in terms of access to jobs and healthcare and education... What does freedom mean? Freedom is a vague concept. Freedom has different meanings to different people. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, I think Cuba is more economically free because people have guaranteed employment. They have guaranteed health care and all of that. But then the economic freedom indexes that we see would have them as one of the least economically free countries because they define economic freedom as free markets and rights to private property. So what does freedom mean? Freedom is in the eye of the beholder. So that's not a question I can answer. Mainstream media and the military-industrial complex. Well, for a long time, NBC was owned by General Electric. Now, I believe at this point it's under different ownership, but it was for many years NBC was was owned by one of the top military contractors, General Electric. General Electric owned MSNBC, NBC, which was a top military contractor. Um, you know, and just the way media in the United States works. I mean, it's tied in with the same big banks and the same corporations that profit from war. Uh, no question about it. No question about it. So, you know, yeah. And there's a lot of underhanded covert sponsorship. Uh, you know, Hollywood movies get sponsored by the military. That's been documented. You know, the military, they sponsor Hollywood movies. Um, you know, if you read Joel Whitney's book, Finks, they talk about how uh, the seven big studios in Hollywood, all of them had a CIA agent, a CIA operative on the board who would oversee the movies and make sure uh, that, uh, that they were in line with what uh, U.S. foreign policy goals were. I'm not making this up. And again, if you say this, they're going to say, that's a conspiracy theory. These are facts, right? Just like they would have said that the, the FBI killing Fred Hampton was a conspiracy theory. No, it was a fact. It was a fact. But, you know, the way they've trained these people to think, again, they're drones, must not, this sounds like it is against mainstream narrative, must not think, must not think, must not question, uh, you broke rule three. Whereas if you talk to a Republican, they'll be like, uh-huh, oh, really? The, the military sponsors movies. You can't talk to people that are part of the woke cult. I mean, you know, Sophie from Mars, look at that video that she made about me, right? It is 
unbelievable. She tries to say that me disagreeing with Hannah Arendt and her narrative about the Holocaust is the same as saying the Holocaust didn't happen. She says sticking up for ordinary working class people is like code, and I only mean white people, which is absolutely ridiculous. Thank you, Herb Bryant, for the super chat. I do appreciate it. You know, you know, it is, it is, you have to, you, you have to, you have to try and engage with people. So there you go. All right. All right. Books on the history of the USSR. All right. A number come to mind. My favorite writer on the history of the USSR by far is Anna Louise Strong. Anna Louise Strong. I love Anna Louise Strong. I Change Worlds, the Stalin era, the Soviets expected it, the Soviets conquer wheat. Anna Louise Strong is an utterly amazing writer. Just beautiful. The sentiments you get from her work are utterly amazing. Anna Louise Strong. Very good. Another good book, People on Our Side by Edgar Snow. It's like it shows the various allies of the USA during the Second World War, including the Soviet Union. People on Our Side by Edgar Snow. Also a very, very good book. Soviet Communism, A New Civilization by Sidney and Beatrice Webb. Great book. I really recommend that book. It gets into great detail about the Soviet legal system, etc. There's a book from the 1970s about the Soviet Union called Cities Without Crisis. It's by a leader of the Communist Party, went and lived in the Soviet Union for a while, and he shows how the Soviet urban centers worked. Cities without crisis. Very good. Um, there's a great book about how the Soviet Union handled the national question and minorities, national minorities. It's called Soviet But Not Russian. Soviet But Not Russian. That's a really good book. Soviet But Not Russian. There's another book called The Siberians. The Siberians. And it's about how the people in Siberia how the Soviet Union recognized their right to self-determination, the economic development of the Siberians. That's a very good book as well. What other books are there? You know, one writer that you might find to be interesting, and I actually met his widow, um, you know, is Corliss Lamont. Corliss Lamont was like kind of a, one of these old, old school liberals who became pro-Soviet. Uh, Corliss Lamont. And I met his wife. Uh, his wife is uh, his widow, his deceased widow. Cor um, uh, you know, she's kind of a, an activist in New York City. She runs the the Humanist Association in New York City. Very nice woman. Um, and uh, Corliss Lamont, um, you know, he wrote a book. You might like socialism, uh, which is pretty good. And it and it's from like kind of a liberal perspective, and it defends the Soviet Union. Uh, that's pretty good. You want to check that out. You might like socialism by Corliss Lamont. Um, I mean, there's many books on, on the Soviet Union and their economic achievements. Um, you know, of course, you don't see those books at Barnes & Noble. Uh, there's many books uh, from that time period that are very, very good. I'm trying to think of other examples. Um, wow. Yeah, Anna Louise Strong is by far my favorite. She's one of my favorite writers. But um, People on Our Side by Edgar Snow, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, Cities Without Crisis, um, or Sydney and Beatrice Webb, Soviet Communism, A New Civilization, uh, Cities Without Crisis. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, so there we go. All right. Um, will manufacturing come back to the homeland under socialism? We would need to, right? Because we're going to break up and nationalize all these big monopolies. So ultimately, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, we're not going to have factories overseas producing for state-run industries in the United States. That would not be... That would not be good. Um, but the main thing that's eliminating jobs in manufacturing is not globalization. It's technology. I mean, that's just a fact. It is technology uh, and the advances in technology that eliminates jobs, right? So 
you know, computer and the computer revolution and advances in technology would continue. Um, centralizing intelligence undermines sovereignty. Uh, are you referring to intelligence in the sense of like intelligence agencies? Or are you referring to like human mind power? Um, and I'm going to write that down. Centralizing intelligence undermines sovereignty. Um, but yeah, I mean, the idea of socialism is that, you know, with a rationally planned economy, technology and more efficient production and abundance would no longer lead to poverty as it does under the capitalist system and human growth would greatly expand. So there you go. Next question. Um, how do you respond to dogmatic Marxists who call everything revisionist? They need to touch grass and try to get something done in the real world. It's very easy to be a dogmatist on the internet. If you just sit on the internet and want to feel good about yourself. You can say the only truly socialist country was, you know, was, was Ethiopia under the Derg, or the only truly socialist country was, you know, was the, the Spanish Paris, you know, the Spanish communes of anarchism. If it's just an intellectual game you're playing, you're never going to get it. But when you actually try to build real organizations and get real things done, you're going to realize you have to make real allies. And then you're going to notice more what you have in common with other people, right? And that that dogmatism, you know, there's a lot of this, a lot of, you know, that's what destiny, when I debated destiny, he wanted me to play SimCity with him. You know, he wanted exactly, he wanted to know exactly how many French fries you get when you order a hamburger in the future society socialist restaurant. It's not SimCity. It's not about sitting around and drawing up your blueprint. And I get that a lot. What does your ideal world look like? And it's like, no, you know, socialism isn't created by ideal worlds. It's created by actual struggles. And the people are in motion and the class struggle between the workers and the capitalists and the struggle of the people of the world against imperialism and the associations that are formed and socialist societies emerge as a result of contradictions. They emerge as a result of clashes between existing social forces. So if you sit there and draw up your perfect blueprint, that doesn't mean anything because socialism isn't created by blueprints. It's created by the society that emerges as a result of struggles and really existing struggles. And you know, my ideal society would be one without a government, would be one with, with so much abundance that everyone could just do what they, they wanted to do, take each according to his own ability, to each according to his needs. But, but there's, the question is, how do you get there, right? And socialist societies that exist are the result of struggles. Um, and they're not perfect. They're definitely not perfect, right? They're by definition imperfect. Socialism is a state of transition. Right. And socialism in itself is not fully, fully able to blossom until it's all over the entire planet. And even then, it's going to be a long time before all the scars and wounds and all the inequality and all the scarcity fades away. So, again, socialism is a process. It's not a goal. It's a process. And and the world is constantly in a state of motion and changing. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of the point there. All right. Um, the clash. I got into the clash when I was in high school. I was looking for albums and I got my hands on the live album of the clash from here to eternity. That's a great album. Um, and I'll still listen to it every so often. And the clash, you know, uh, they have a lot of good songs and they had kind of a leftist aesthetic to them. And they had an album dedicated to supporting the Sandinistas. It was called Sandinista. Um, you know, um, and they, um, they kind of combined reggae themes with their punk rock and they started out. It was just kind of pure punk rock. And then they combined like reggae kind of themes with it. Um, you know, some of their later stuff, London Calling and stuff has a lot of very big reggae influences. 
Um, you know, uh, and yeah, I mean, they were, um, you know, some of their, some of their stuff has a real Marxist and labor theme to it. Um, you know, songs like looking for the clamp down cause, what is it? Uh, scour the walls, cause governments to fall. How can re you refuse it? Let fury have the hour and anger can be power. You know that you can use it. Um, you know, and it was, I guess there was the Brixton riots, right? Where there were riots of unemployed youth in Britain in the late seventies, unemployed youth like went out and rioted. Um, and that was kind of the basis for, um, for the punk movement and for, you know, kind of 1980s punk rock leftism. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's Gen X kind of stuff, right? That's, you know, again, you know, um, you know, that's, you know, there's that novel, the basketball diaries, uh, that eventually they made a movie out of Leonardo DiCaprio about a, a basketball playing youth from a Catholic high school who becomes addicted to heroin. Um, and there's kind of a darkness to it. It's not the sixties, right? Sixties stuff, you know, the sixties generation, it has a kind of a happy vibe overall. Now there's a pessimistic undertone, especially to a lot of the Beatles stuff and all that, but, but it still has this happy vibe. Whereas the Gen X stuff, the punk rock, the Gen X the punk punk novels and all of that. There's a kind of an underlying dark grunge tone to it, right? There you go. There you go. All righty. Um, was Gaddafi more utopian? I would say no. Um, Gaddafi disagreed with Marxism because he argued that you couldn't have the dictatorship of the proletariat in Libya because the proletariat was a minority of the population. Most of the population were Bedouin. Uh, most of the population were not like wage laborers. So having a dictatorship, the proletariat in Libya did not make sense. Um, it's a great book, uh, the Green Book. And it's very scientific and it's very secular. Um, you know, and it's just kind of like, we're going to use Libya's resources for the benefit of the population. We're going to have a non-capitalist economy, but we're not Marxists because we don't believe in the dictatorship of the proletariat and we are guided by our Islamic faith, but it's, it's very, very scientific. Um, I, I, I don't see Gaddafi as utopian and he built a real society. Um, you know, it wasn't just in his head. I don't know enough about the left movement in Chile. I can't comment on it. Cynthia McKinney. She's awesome. I've met Cynthia McKinney several times. I interviewed her about 9-11 Truth um, when they put a billboard up in Times Square. And I interviewed her. Um, you know, I did stuff, you know, when she was campaigning for president in 2012. I, I, I voted for her. I campaigned for her. Or no, when she was campaigning for president in 2008, not 2012. I supported her. I campaigned for her. I voted for her. Um, she's awesome. Uh, and, you know, she stood up and I, I, I helped organize a great mass meeting with former Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney. Uh, around Libya. She was a supporter of Gaddafi and she spoke at the Riverside Church. We organized a mass meeting for her. And yes, I am, I am very much a, an admirer of Cynthia McKinney. Um, you know, now she's teaching in Bangladesh, I believe. She's a teacher in, in Bangladesh. She teaches college students. Uh, and she's another example. When she first got elected, she was kind of a regular Democrat. But, you know, she, she didn't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance um, in Congress, uh, you know, because she's kind of from a black nationalist background. Um, and she's definitely an ally of Minister Farrakhan and many of the Black Revolutionary Forces, the new Black Panther Party. Um, and she's also, she's not woke. She's not part of the woke left. I mean, she's against police brutality for sure. Um, and she spoke up about a lot of very important political prisoner cases like Reverend Pinckney, right? Reverend Pinckney was this, um, you know, this minister in Benton Harbor, Michigan, who was a black minister who went to jail for registering people to vote. Basically, they threw him in jail just for registering people to vote because he was a community leader. They tried to say he committed fraud. It was unbelievable. And she spoke up for Reverend Pinckney. 
She spoke up for the Lucasville prisoners in Ohio, the, the survivors of the Lucasville prison uprising. Um, yeah, she's definitely a progressive, but you know, she, she's very critical of, uh, of the vaccine stuff. Um, you know, uh, and you know, she takes a lot of positions that are not standard left positions because she's not like, she's not a standard leftist. She's a black nationalist and she's from a black revolutionary current. And she really likes Alex Jones and stuff like that. And I admire Cynthia McKinney, but yeah, I'm sure, you know, she's canceled. Oh no, she's canceled. They try to say she's anti-Semitic, you know, you know, just like me. If you're, if you're, you know, they used to say you ain't done nothing if you ain't been called a red. Well, you ain't done nothing if you ain't been called a red brown. You ain't done nothing if you ain't been called a, a Nazbol or a conspiracy theorist or a crypto fascist. You know, you ain't done nothing. Uh, you ain't done nothing if you haven't done been called those things. So, and I, I admire Cynthia McKinney. I'm glad to glad to say I voted for her. You be left and not communist. Why associate progressivism with Marxism? Well, I mean, of course you can be left and not communist. Um, you know, and progressivism. Right. I mean, you're talking about like Wisconsin, you're talking about what is it? The, um, the farmer labor party, stuff like that. Yes, there are, there are people that supported the labor movement, supported the civil rights movement who weren't communists, of course. Um, you know, I mean, it used to be that the way politics in the United States was that the people on the right were further away from communism. The people on the left, they weren't communists, but they were less hostile to it than people on the right. It's not like that anymore. Wokeism is this new ideology that claims to be leftism, that is a cancer. And it's not progressivism. It's not Senator Paul Wellstone. It's not, uh, you know, it's not the farmer labor party. It's this, this awful ideology that hates working people, um, that argues in, you know, there's too many people in the world, that's degrowth oriented, um, and it's disgusting. But yes, genuine progressivism prior to wokeism, prior to the synthetic left, prior to the Congress for Cultural Freedom, Prior to um, you know degrowthism, genuine progressivism like Henry Wallace, uh, you know like Roosevelt, uh, you know that's that's something that yeah it's not communist but it's good it's it's a, you know it's it's moving in the right direction, uh, you know uh, um, like I mentioned Dennis Kucinich he was not a communist but he was definitely a real progressive I I, I worked for Dennis Kucinich I mean I campaigned for him and I I mean he knew me uh, you know I remember one time wild story. Well, I, I shouldn't tell that story here, but you know, when I was in Cleveland as an activist, I encountered and sat next to Dennis Kucinich so many times. And that's a good guy. He's not a communist. He's a good guy though. He's an anti-imperialist. He's a great guy. Alrighty. Anyway, um, centralizing intelligence undermines sovereignty. What does that mean? Like having a CIA undermine sovereignty or having only one intelligence agency. What does that mean? I don't quite know what you mean there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, the intelligence agencies definitely manipulate our political process. That's clear. The complexities in society are naturally created by the elite managerial class to solidify their positions of power. Sure, sure. But the elite managerial class works for those who own the means of production, the banks, factories, and industries. Uh, there's a book by James Burnham, um, The Managerial Revolution, that argued that in like the 1930s, uh, the capitalist class was over defeated by was was overturned by the managerial class. And no, the managerial class works for the capitalist class, right? You know, the the CIA are they're the foot soldiers of the Rockefellers, the Ford Foundation, the military industrial complex, and yes, there are social engineering forces, uh, but they work for a profit centered entity. Um, and you can read the Anglo American Establishment by Carol Quigley. Uh, you can read uh, the Yankee and Cowboy War 
by Carl Oglesby, which is a very good book about this. There are factions in the ruling class, and the CIA um, uh, definitely is in with like the Rockefellers, the DuPonts, the Carnegies, the Morgans, uh, the folks that are in New England that are tied to big oil companies that are definitely more managerial and social engineering in their outlook. There, there's no question about that. Um, absolutely, you're right about that. But they don't, it's not like those people rule over capital. Capital is tied up with government agencies, and it's about securing the flow of profits in the hands of, of ultra monopolies that dominate the world. Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. All right, folks, I think we're going to end it here. New upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today, folks. Good night.